Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Uh, tonight, once again, we have Jack Reed from the Community Planet Foundation to talk about his book, The Next Evolution. Uh, we'll be reading. We're kind of in the middle of Chapter Three. Uh, these shows don't have, seem to have the same rhythm as the uh, the other ones did because Jack's chapters are a lot longer than Jock's were. But uh, we have been doing a lot of great reading and having a lot of great discussion. Um, I have actually a much larger panel this time. I'm going to go ahead and uh, have them start introducing themselves. I'll start with you, Jack, um, just because we never know when we have a first-time listener. Okay. Hi, everybody. This is Jack. I'm the director of the Community Planet Foundation and uh, author of the book, The Next Evolution, that will be that Neil has been reading. So if you want more information, go to the website, www.communityplanet.org. There's a great 38-minute video there that explains a lot about the vision. And um, so um, next panelist. Okay. All right, Thunder. Bring on the thunder. Uh, do I have to? You have to. You never know. They may not know who you are. <laughs> Bad chance of that. Mm-hmm. Hello, everybody. You know me. I don't know all of you, but I'm sure I'll figure that part out later. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, well, that being said, we're going to move on to Gilbert. Hi, uh my name is Gilbert, I'm from the Netherlands, and I'm the international chapter coordinator for the Zeitgeist Movement. Okay. All right. Um, now we also have a new panelist uh, from the Canadian chapter. Uh, is it Xavier? Uh, actually, I go by Kevin. Okay, Kevin. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell them who you are, how you learned about the movement and all that, since you're brand new. Okay. Uh, well, uh Again, my name is Kevin Labonte. Uh, you'll probably see me as Xavier Labonte on some things and Maverick as uh, others, uh, as I go by that as a nickname. I'm a member of the London chapter of the Zeitgeist Movement. Um, I'm also a co-host of uh, a radio show called TZM London with uh, Jim Hamill. And uh, we are basically, the, as everybody else, is just trying to spread the word of the Venus Project. Um, I saw the movies. That's how I joined, and that's pretty much it. You mean London, Canada, right? It's important. Yes. <laughs> London, Canada, yes. Um, all right, well, uh, that's everybody. So uh, I guess basically tonight uh, to go over a little bit about what's been going on with V-Radio, um, please visit vradio.org. That's v-radio.org. Um, I'm trying to get donations together for July and also donations together to assist me in getting my Skype account up and running. I had forgotten that um, my Skype was going to renew next month. And so the silver widget that you find on the website is for the purposes of that. Um, And the red widget is just to try to get a head start on the uh, donations for July. Since I got a better connection to do Zeitgeist TV, it's way better. And um, as a result, uh, the video quality was also a lot better. As soon as I have my RAM situation settled, then we'll be doing Zeitgeist TV a lot more often. Um, In any case, uh, just wanted to bring all of that up to everybody, and uh, thank you all for tuning in, and thank everybody who supported the show so far. Uh, The format for this show, basically, is we've been reading from Jack's book, 
And uh, then we will be uh, reading, obviously calling on these different panelists to give their opinions of the chapter and, you know, essentially just create an exchange. Um, the last show went like three hours. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's going to happen again, but um, if we get to the two-hour mark, and uh, I'll, I'll generally tell everybody that the live show will cut off. You'll be able to listen to the rest of it on the archive if it comes up. So... That being said, um, if everybody else would mute, I'm getting ready to start reading. We're in the middle of uh, Chapter 3 right now on page 103. I'm going to go ahead and start reading from here. Um, I think we're on <clears throat> 102. New oh, book. yeah, you're right. I'm looking at that now. All right, here we go. Um New definitions. To keep our resources intact, we need to eliminate as many non-essential jobs and products as possible. And acting as one family, we need to share our wealth and resources. We need to redefine wealth as USC and access rather than as possessions and power. I'm sorry, use, not USC. <laughs> not sure why I thought that was an acronym. I'm going to go ahead and read this sentence again. We need to redefine wealth as use and access rather than as possessions and power. Oh, hold on. Sure that the call doesn't hang up. Everybody still here? Looks like we might have lost thunder. I'm yeah. still. Yeah. Okay. I can re-add him. Anyway, I'm going to go ahead and reading. Um. To keep our re okay. I'm sorry. The everyone for themselves paradigm has used up our planet's resources by producing more materialism for some, and only some people but not for the vast majority of people on the planet. The majority would have far more if wealth were redefined as use and access. And if we all acted according to that definition, we can live cooperatively with so much more abundance available to us. As a planet, we can no longer afford to have individual ownership of so many things when we can get by and do even better on much less when it is shared. For example, almost none of us have boats, but with the highest good use and access approach, more people could enjoy boating and with far fewer boats and thus the resources it takes to build and maintain them. In almost any marina, about 99% of the boats go unused most of the time. If we shared access, those boats would be in use rather than 99%, uh, the 99% docked. Just think of the possibilities if this were a use and access world. We would have all the freedom to do so much more. Did you know that there were over 25,000 supermarkets in including 200 kinds of cereal. There are also over 11,000 magazines, mostly filled with ads for more products. There is such a tremendous amount of stuff in stores and warehouses with more being produced all the time and eventually hauled off to landfills. In fact, there may be as much in storage as there is being used. Much of it is, to, uh, much of it is also the art of selling us what we don't really need. Such is the nature of capitalism. Also, in the spirit of sharing, we need to look at quality of life more in terms of intangibles such as fun, shared creative activities, nurturing, loving, etc., things that money really can't buy. I have reserved the next chapter to describe more in detail what uh, that might look like in a creative model of living that would work for all of us. The idea of great wealth at the expense of great poverty doesn't make sense anymore when we must now do no further damage to our environment. 
Molly Olson, a member of President Clinton's Council on Sustainable Development, stated that, quote, a society with a grossly disparate distribution of the fruits of development cannot possibly sustain itself in the long term, end quote. Take deforestation, for example, because most industrialized countries have already destroyed most of their own forests, and most deforestation is now occurring in third world countries where people are living on the edge of survival and need either more farming land and or fuel to survive even in this generation. Along with that, their debt-ridden governments think they must sacrifice their forests and resources looking for short-term profits to pay off their debt interests. We can't just ask the third world countries to stop cutting down their forests because the issue must be tied into improving the quality of their lives. We can't just have people living in poverty trying to support a family because they will take from the environment what they have to in order just to survive. But as a reminder, the issues are not just environmental. We can't have people working at minimum wage trying to support and effectively raise a family. Put yourself in the place of those trapped by poverty, the lack of education and skills, and even the lack of positive role models. With that hopelessness, it's easy to understand why people turn to drugs and crime. So we must change the world on the level of how people live together. For this to happen, it requires a change of consciousness where we switch from the everyone-for-themselves paradigm and start acting for the highest good of all. We must also consider the Earth as a partner in that change. Imagine the Earth as a living being. Would we choose to continue to slowly poison it or choose to begin to heal it? To heal it, we have to start thinking about what we're doing every time we buy, use, or discard anything, and we need to creatively rethink how we can change the whole system that created our current patterns in the first place. Unfortunately, though, we haven't set up our lives so that we as a group can easily make Earth-healing choices. On the one hand, we have those trapped in poverty, forced to use up the environment, and on the other hand, we have consumerism producing unnecessary and far too many products with their accompanying packaging and disposal problems. Most of our city's landfills are full and closed and are contaminating our groundwater in addition to releasing methane gas into the atmosphere. We Americans have been throwing away enough waste each year to fill a convoy of 10-ton garbage trucks that would reach over halfway to the moon. The packaging for our consumeristic lifestyles contributes the largest percentage of that waste, 50% of all paper produced in the U.S. and 90% of all glass. We Americans also have the highest level of consumption in the world. With 6% of the world's population, we consume more than 30% of the planet's resources. In addition, we use twice as much energy per person than any other country and are responsible for more than one-fourth of the carbon dioxide and CFC emissions. As a result of the Industrial Revolution and the resulting pollutants now being released into the environment, man now has the possibility to destroy the planet, even without a nuclear war. However, the fact that there will be no easy way out of the world economic dilemma, along with the now obvious environmental threat, may be a good thing. Ultimately, it will push us in the direction of trying to act for the highest good of all concerned, of acting like one family, of taking care of each other in a more loving and nurturing way, and of addressing the quality of life for everyone on the planet. We need a workable new model. So where do we start? There are so many imbalances, so many things that need to be corrected, and so many just causes that trying to do this something about each little area of interest gets to be an overwhelming task. 
save the dolphins, the whales, recycle and political corruption, save, um, end political corruption, save the rainforest, do something about crime, reduce our drug use, eliminate domestic violence, etc., etc., etc. So much to do and so little time left for the planet. Also, there's the problem that everything, as physics systems theory tells us, is interrelated. So something like saving the rainforest is not as easy as it seems because it relates to so many factors, including the quality of people's lives. Therefore, there must be a systems approach to rescue the planet, and it must include and address the quality of life for everyone on the planet. To do this requires two things. We need a different approach for how we as a people live together and share together, and we need to move into the cooperative consciousness required to do this, the consciousness where we truly dedicate ourselves to living for the highest good of all. Because most of the people in the world would have no idea what it would look like if we chose to live together for the highest good of all, the first step would be to create a model community based on the concept of making life work for all of us to show the world how life could be very, very different. While intentional egalitarian communities are certainly not a new idea, with many small ones currently existing, none have been created with the intention and on the scale that is needed to arouse worldwide interest. We need to see an approach that not only could heal the planet, but will also show a different way of living with a daily quality of life that would be more uplifting for almost anyone living on the planet. The way we live together and relate together in community is the basic building block that is needed to change the world. The creation of a model community that demonstrates living for the highest good of all will enable others to see how we can all cooperate and enjoy a higher and happier standard of living. With a successful demonstration and media coverage of this model, people from all over the world will be able to see and hear about a lifestyle that they too can enjoy and how we can start by setting up life to work for everyone, for the highest good of all. Again, there are enough resources and manpower for all of us, all life on the planet, to live together very abundantly. We just haven't set it up that way yet because of the legacy of everyone, our everyone for themselves socioeconomic political approach. It is now time, so I invite you to expand your consciousness and open your heart as we describe a model that could work for everyone that would stave off the dire predictions of what otherwise is in store for us. We now move on to Chapter 4, Living for the Highest Good in Community. The way we live together and relate together in community is the basic building, basic building block of what is needed to change the world, the Community Planet Foundation. Utilizing the concept of living for the highest good of all life, how do we design our model living situation or community so that it will work for all of us? We must not only meet the needs of the planet by living sustainably, but we must also meet the needs of the people involved by optimizing the quality of life for all people. So the questions are, one, does being ecological mean that we have to suffer? And two, does sharing our resources mean that we all have less? The answer to these questions is an emphatic no. In fact, living in harmony with each other and the planet can be more fun, far more abundant, and much more satisfying than the lifestyles most of us are currently living. Given the Western society's penchant for consumption and indulgence, if we can't provide a more satisfying model for living, we won't change how we live until the decaying environment eventually forces us as a society to change our consum uh, consumption patterns. But we don't have to let it get to that point, because doing the best for the planet will also optimize the quality of life for all of us if we choose to live together in a way that can truly work for all of us. So open your mind and your heart to the possibility of how we could be living, and if there's something that we may leave out of our description, 
or that you may wish to alter somewhat, just put that in because you would be a part of this model too and your needs are important. How have we designed our towns and cities? As a starting point, let's look at how traditional towns and communities get started. How did your town or city end up looking and operating as it does? Chances are that it started out with a single home or two, possibly even farms, located, located on some fairly flat land. Then there were probably more homes built as people moved into the area, and they were followed by some businesses. When the cluster grew big enough, government and service buildings were added until there was an unpleasant, or I'm sorry, there was an unplanned and unintegrated hodgepodge of structures and streets. Also, because of everyone for themselves economic model, most of the space under roofs and most of the concrete laid down to cover the earth ended up robbing people with each other and with nature, which eventually got pushed out of their lives. With the advent of cars, we started paving streets, driveways, parking lots, walkways, and freeways until an astounding amount of land was covered with asphalt and concrete. Since it was easier to build on the lowlands and flatlands, we forced the farms further and further out from the cities, and with suburban sprawl further out still, eventually even leading to the demise of the small farmer. Then as the cities overcrowded, those who could move moved away from the town centers dreaming of the good life with a home in suburbia. They moved into their large suburban homes, which now don't even reflect the current living relationship patterns. But with the need for everyone for themselves income, we often have to jump back onto freeways and spend a lot of time in congested rush hour travel. We also have to get back into our cars to go and do almost anything, shopping, recreation, errands, meetings with friends, etc. So before anyone ever stopped to do an environmental or sociological impact study, we created havoc for both of our immediate environment and our lifestyles. We pushed out nature. We pushed out fresh food on the best farmland. We tied up our lives in traveling and depersonalization to the point that many of us now get minimal exercise. We are now a nation of overweight and obese people largely because of this factor. Minimal playtime, and most importantly, the minimal quality time spent with good friends and family. Chances are, for many of us, the jobs we have to do to support ourselves take up and sometimes become most of our lives. And many of us spend 99% of our time with concrete between us and the earth. Can we design living in harmony? But what if we could live in harmony with the environment, with each other, and with ourselves? And what if we could also enjoy really abundant, nurturing, creative, and fun lives? Imagine living in a community of loving, nurturing friends who live and work together as one family. This community has been meticulously designed and built so that we are living in harmony with all life. Because we have chosen to live in a way designed from the beginning to be for the highest good of all life, we are living integrated with nature rather than having to use the vast amount of building and concrete space inherent in the everyone-for-themselves model. The community produces all its own clean energy, and through cooperation and the use of positive technology, is as non-polluting and sustainable as possible. Nature flourishes on hundreds of beautiful acres, and most of the organic food is grown through advanced techniques and non-obtrusive edible landscaping. Since vehicles are parked at the outskirts of the community and pavement is used minimally, it's a wonderful place to play outdoors or to go for a walk and touch the land. When residents are done working in supportive nurturing jobs, the community offers a full array of recreational, creative, and growth opportunities. Organized sports, games, music, movies, just hanging out with great people and other fun and relaxing activities are freely available, and the residents enjoy them with friends who are within easy walking distance. The population of the community would be between 400 and 500. 
That size would be large enough so that the community could have um, the kinds of amenities and opportunities for a variety of recreational and creative expression, yet not so large that it would preclude any person from taking an active role in the decision-making process in the community. Cooperative communities have existed for years, but none based on the highest good for all model on the scale that would have more universal appeal, such that people not living there would, be, would say, yeah, this community's lifestyle is much better than my own. I'd like to live there. Most are too small to have the amenities and the diversity that would appeal to people used to certain opportunities of urban living. Critical to the design of the community is what I call the fun factor. Communities have stagnated and ultimately failed because they weren't fun and people lost interest. Some people are having fun, others are drawn in. Thus, for the community model to be viable, fun, and pleasure must be interwoven into every facet of the community. In fact, a highest good approach mandates that fun, joy, and loving be the essences in our daily lives because they are so essential to our individual and collective well-being. People need to know that we can have a society where we're really connecting with each other and having a lot of pleasure. Most people now have grown up thinking that fun is having control over others, being self-indulging, being greedy, being lustful, and competing with and having enjoyment at the expense of others. People need to rediscover in a deeper way what fun is for them, and a community designed for the highest good of all will provide the ideal stage for this rediscovery. The tremendous potential, for, uh, potential of the use and access principle I described earlier is an integral part of this. Suggesting a model. Not being an experienced writer, this chapter describing how this life could be in a cooperative community on the scale I'm proposing was the hardest chapter to write. What was the best way to paint a picture of how life could be? I considered a day-in-the-life type of approach, but that seemed a little trite to me. Instead, since presenting the vision of how life could be very different in the key factor, uh, is the key factor to seeing how we can live together in harmony, I decided to go with a more detailed description of a community, possible community design for the highest good of all. As a way of introducing a description of what life could look like in a community built on the principle of the highest good of all, I'd like to share with you the introduction from the proposed model that I, along with a few members of the Community Planet Foundation, wrote a few years ago. We have been working with various models, so keep in mind that this is just one possible option we're considering, and there are a lot of possibilities. Now, imagine looking out and seeing unspoiled nature with a clean air and a stream running by with clean, drinkable water. Imagine at the same time that you are in the middle of a community where people are living and working together as one family. The residents here increase their abundance by sharing community resources, which allows everyone access to a full range of recreational, educational, and creative interests. A purpose of this community is to support individuals in their growth so that they can make their dreams a reality. It is also the aim of its members to find peace and harmony within themselves, with others, and with nature in hopes that this will assist in bringing peace to this earth. This is the vision shared by the members of the Community Plan Foundation, which is bringing forth a planned cooperative community. We are designing an environment that enables us to live in greater harmony and balance with ourselves, each other, and our environment. In this community, it is necessary that our lifestyle not only has abundance and success, but is also nurturing and fun. In creating such a model community, others will be able to see how we can all cooperate and enjoy a higher standard of living. Others can learn from sharing our experiments and, um, and experience through public publications, seminars, workshops, and temporary residence in the community. 
Eventually, we envision that the replication of our community or similar models will have a transforming effect on the individual and world peace and prosperity of all mankind. Our first challenge is to create that initial successful model. To do so, we believe that the key area to focus on is how we live together. We consider issues such as how to incorporate the latest technology and how to live in harmony with nature to be very important. However, our primary concern is how we interact and relate with one another and how we make decisions that include and involve everyone. Without this, we would be missing the essence of what a community really can be, a loving and joyful support group for all its residents. To capture the essence of what we want in our community, we created this affirmation. We are living in a community, a home of peace and loving dedicated, uh, of peace and loving dedicated to demonstrating harmony with all life, nurturing and supporting each other, sharing our wealth as one family, listening to the truth within each other, and responding with kindness, consideration, and loving honesty. At first, our plan was to describe the community through focusing on areas like economics, agriculture, education, recreation, etc. Instead, we chose to focus on more expansive questions involving how people will live together. One, how do we share our abundance? Two, how do we interact with our environment? Three, how do we reach consensus? Four, how do we beautify our environment? Five, how do we enjoy ourselves? Six, how do we enrich ourselves? Seven, how do we coordinate what we live to do? Eight, how do we nourish ourselves? Nine, how do we vitalize ourselves? Ten, how do we communicate? Eleven, how do we bring forth inner wisdom? Twelve, how do we expand our community? To see how much more expensive these 12 how-do-we-focus areas are, notice how the areas of health involve so much more than we consider. How do we vitalize ourselves? Likewise, with food and production and preparation, when the question is, how do we nourish ourselves? It makes us think about all the aspects that are important in nourishing ourselves rather than just putting food in our bodies. We see how the 12 focus areas are all interrelated, and we think it is important that as we move into a new age of cooperation, that we begin to consider our lives as a whole rather than compartmentalize them. As we explored the 12 focus areas, we intentionally tried to avoid making hard and fast rules. We wanted the individual to have as much freedom as possible. At the same time, we realized that everyone in the community would have to have a commitment to the community's well-being and its mission for it to succeed. There are three parts in describing each of the 12 focus areas. The first is a short overview. Next are essence statements, which are the ideals we feel are the essences for the focus area. Last, we list the guidelines, which are the standards we will observe in the explanation of how our community functions with respect to that focus area. It's important what questions we ask. Not only is it important that we ask questions about how we live together, but it's important to ask the right questions. Any community is only going to be as good as the fundamental questions it asks and is willing to take on. The questions determine the outcomes. So it all starts with the questions. In the 18th century America, we once asked the question, how can we live with more freedom, equality, and harmony? It was at the time revolutionary in the world. Even today, everywhere in the world, people know of Washington, Jefferson, and Franklin but we've stagnated and largely forgotten that noble question that was the foundation for our country, and it's now time to take freedom for the equality to the next level, freedom and equality to the next level. In fact, with what we've done to the planet, it's needed for our very survival. 
Any good idea or good question is always subject to, cons to corruption if it is not constantly and creatively explored and energized. Right now, it's obvious that the power brokers and money interests in our everyone-for-themselves paradigm have exploited the once noble question our founding fathers asked. The planet isn't going to survive in an everyone-for-themselves paradigm with the questions that the power-based system asks. How can we get control and shape people's lives? How can we gather for ourselves as much wealth as possible? And how can we dismember and numb people out so they don't overthrow the system and we lose control? While the last question may not be absolutely conscious, the big players absolutely have a huge stake in maintaining the status quo. Remember the Nikola Tesla story earlier? Well, that's just one of a million examples. Because of the stagnation and narrowness in the questions we currently ask, that's why we, in our community planet community description, decided we had to be really expansive in the questions, and we chose to ask about how we live together in community. For example, the question we asked about how we govern ourselves, how do we reach consensus, stands in stark contrast to the current ideology of how does everyone try to get their way and how do the power brokers manipulate and control the masses. If we were to ask how do we reach consensus in, an hour, um, in all our decision making, the question is so expansive and all-encompassing that we would eventually come up with a decision-making system that includes the highest good for all. As part of that question, we would take on the more fundamental question I've posed. Given that there are enough resources and manpower on the planet for all of us to live abundantly and in harmony with the environment, what is the problem? As long as we have the imbalances on the planet that we currently have, we need to passionately keep asking that question and start acting upon it. Eventually, we would end up with a model that would work for all life on the planet and for future generations. Again, it all boils down to what questions we ask and are willing to take on. And I think most societies have been asking very limiting questions at best. For example, the Puritan culture, which still has an influence on us today, asked very controlling questions. How can we get people to behave out of fear? How can we punish people to keep them in line? How can we show the su that suffering is good? How can we keep women in their place? And how do we repress people and get them to keep their feelings to themselves? At this time in history, we need to ask very different questions. The kinds of questions that we asked in our community description of how we would live together more successfully and abundantly. Underlying all the questions is our foundational fundamental question. How can we live together for the highest good of all concerned? All right, that's a half hour of reading, so I'm going to bring on my panelists to discuss this. Um, I think Thunder might be having internet problems because I didn't get any kind of evidence that he was back on. So uh, I'm going to start with you, Jack. What comments do you have so far on what we've been reading? Well, you know, it's, it's, I read this book a while ago, and it's interesting hearing it read. And, and as I hear it read, it's like I'm listening to somebody else having written it. So I can understand how this book uh, won book awards in, in every contest that it was entered into. Right. So, so it's, you know, because I, when I wrote the book, I, I had written nothing before in terms of anything like this. And I just thought that I'd end up – when I wrote the first version of the, uh, well, the first draft of it, I had a section at the back apologizing for how it was written. And a friend of mine who contributed some of the ideas, actually, that we, 
that we just listened to in the it's important what questions we asked. She said, you got to take that out of there because this book is actually very well written. So, so that was interesting. But part of, part of what we're talking about here in terms of what people are trying to do on the planet is there's so many different imbalances and crises and things to rally against and and to fight against that one can just use up all their time just being involved in trying to be against things. And we've got a, a saying, an expression, which is the solution for everything is the solution to anything. Because what people need to realize is that Everything is connected. That's what the systems theory in physics tells us. Everything is interconnected. So we go after the basic thing that needs to change, which is everything. If we just change the game, then we can change all these little things that people are using up their life force and all the billions and billions of dollars trying to fight against something and you know, and, and to try and preserve things, and we just need to change the whole system. Then it becomes easy because then, as people see the model of how people can live together far more abundantly and creatively and lovingly and and with more happiness, then everybody's going to want to do that as opposed to the the crises where we're heading with the environment with the people being just stressed out with so much time working and the financial concerns. So we just need to create a different model for people to say, oh, I see that. So that's what we're working on creating, and that's why this book was written. It wasn't written to sell books. It was written because here's a model, something that we could do that would change everything else. Yeah, that's definitely great. Um, I, you know, I have to say though, if for being your first book that was anything like that, I, you did a good job too. Um, so, uh, but that being said, I'm going to move on to another panelist. Silver, uh, what did you think about the chapter so far? Well, I have a lot of things to say. Um, first, I have to agree very much with the uh, Jack. That's uh, excellently written. Uh, you could definitely not tell that I was the first. Uh, time you had written something like that. Also, uh, I agreed on many many of the examples you used of the current wrongs, if you will, in the system. So certainly I, I agree with that, and I think you worded them uh, very well in this book. Uh, but then we move on to the, the solutions, and I have some uh, issues there. Uh, as you uh, did Mention and if it, it's for for me it's at 3:30 a.m. in the morning. So if something I misunderstood, please correct me after I finish my rant. Um, you uh, mentioned something about creating a, a model community. Uh, my first problem here is uh, I haven't read enough into the community planet to know whether you are using some system of exchange, the monetary system or whatever, is there something like that intended in such a, such a model community? That's right where he left off and where he'll be as he picks up uh, 
reading in the book, that's exactly where he left off. I see. Okay. Well, I guess we'll come to that later then. For now, I'm then going blind on what I thought was uh, quite important to note out. Right now, uh, my, my problem with intentional communities in general, not only your concept, is that it seems that, it, I mean, the idea is, is lovely. I mean, uh, you mentioned a lot of powerful words, words in there like uh, loving, caring, having fun, which I completely agree with. It, that's very important to our development as human beings, also having some fun in our existence instead of being wage slaves. But I, I seem to forget with many people that, tr that advocate such communities as a method to change is that they forget the effect from the outside. Uh, and you can address that probably uh, very uh, thoroughly uh, in a moment. But what I see with others is that they tend to forget that in order to make such a community work, they will also have to access resources and therefore use the monetary system and engage in the capitalistic system, which means they cannot never fully uh, represent how life would be in such a community if we had a completely different world, because half of the time they would still be engaged in the capitalistic system uh, or monetary system, and well, they'll still be facing the same values. So that would be hard in my opinion. Also, the requirement of resources, if your intention is to use a certain form of exchange or even the current monetary system, yes, this would work on a, on a limited scale, but then you would still be, as I mentioned in my previous argument, uh, facing the same half, half uh, good community, half uh, uh, engaging in the capitalistic or monetary system. Uh, if you are not using it, then it will be very hard uh, to acquire the resources needed to keep such a community running. Also, um, sorry that this is so long. I have some uh, some uh, issues with something that you mentioned, like expand our community. Um, doing that, I mean, that certain sentence I would like to have more explained by you, I guess, just to... Uh, to understand what exactly you meant by, by expand our community. I mean, of course, you're always willing to have more people in, but I would like to see how you, how you would define that and how you, you would see that happening. And my last argument was to, up till now, is that I think that if you do intend to set an example and um, represent, sorry, make this model and something for people to look at in order to accept uh, another way of living, I think it wouldn't be impactful enough because the value change, the thing that really needs to happen within people, would have been too slow if they only had this as an example as opposed to uh, more active activism in the way that bringing it to the people instead of them having to find you and explaining to people what is actually wrong instead of them having to, having to identify it from your way of living. But that's a whole rant. Let me, uh, let me interrupt you only because you're asking like four or five questions. And there's no way he's going to be able to answer them all, um, <laughs> <laughs> at least not right away. Um, so, Jack, can you comment on anything he said so far? And then if you want to continue, Gilbert, go ahead. Just um, keep notes of stuff like that. I absolutely want you to you know, have this conversation. Just we have to make sure that it flows correctly or you're going to spend a lot of time bringing up things that there's no way anybody's going to remember. No problem at all. Mm -hmm. uh, sure. Most of the things that uh, Gilbert just brought up 
are actually described in the book as you as you continue reading. Um, for instance, the how do we expand our community? That's the answer. That is is described at the end of this chapter four that you're that you're reading, and. In, in terms of where to start, you know, to start changing everything, it takes a starting point somewhere. Somebody has to demonstrate something different. So even as we're needing to interact with the current economic system in the creation of the community, in the initial stages of the community, within the community itself, as will be described, we can start to do something different. And in terms of transforming the planet, if 3,000 people in six 500-person communities in one place start to do this so that people can see, and part of this is going to be that we will absolutely get the message out there, there that there is something different happening and there are thousands and thousands of people who want to be a part of this, who will come. And yes. after this first community gets started, then if the next year there's that spawns two more communities and the next year each of those spawn two more communities, you know, how the, uh, how the pyramid thing works, within 30 years the entire planet is transformed. And, and that's what it's going to take to make the shift is people just think, people just for out of, acting even out of their own self-interest are going to say, I want to be there. I want to do something different. I want to take my life back. I want to have more fun, more health, more happiness, more abundance. I want to be a part of that. And that's what's going to be the change. That's what's going to have to have to happen to change the game. But it takes first one model to show that there can be something different, and that's what we're proposing, to start with that one model. Because otherwise, what do we do? We just wave the white flag, or do we just try and fix small things that, that are not really going to fix anything, really? And, and you're right. It does hand-in-hand hand with that form of the highest good on the outer. It also takes people who hold that consciousness of the highest good who are going to be willing to shift consciousness into that kind of cooperation that, that is going to be needed. So, yeah, that's part of the whole thing. Well, yeah, I can understand that, but I, I still have some problems here because you, you mentioned that, that that is what it takes for multiple communities to start up, and you mentioned something like the number of thousands uh, of people who would be willing to do that, but I, I mentioned I'm part of the Zeitgeist Movement, and we look at it at, at a global so you're talking about people that, that see you doing that and making the change. But my major problem here is, there, sure, in America, there are people that can do that, that can afford to do that. But there, in other parts of the world, I mean, America and the Western world is just a small part of the world population. I'd say a lot of the people, uh, more than 4 billion people, uh, live in extreme conditions of poverty and won't have the same access to, to methods to even consider doing uh, something community-wise. Of course, they have tribes in Africa, Africa but it's not, it's not like it was before. Uh, these people are also engaged in, in the same system, and they have to 
to five on a day-by-day -day basis. So uh, for them, it's very hard to start locally. How would you address these problems? The same way that we were, as a matter of fact, we were looking at doing a in Kenya, and we came close to being able to do it. There, there, there were the resources in place. There was the land in place. And we could have done a demonstration of a third world country. So it's just a matter of making the connections to have that happen because this is something that could easily be done in a third world country. And part of my lifelong motivation for doing something to transform the planet exactly was thinking about those people who have been disenfranchised and whose life has not been working for them and their families for generations. So that's absolutely part of this picture, but it still needs to start with a model. I see where you're going with this, Jack, and then basically it's kind of a matter of, you know, the model helps, helps us to bring about a global consciousness of the fact that this is a viable solution. Is that kind of where you're going with that? Yeah, we need to see, a, people need to see like, oh, this is just very different, and we could do this and this and this and this, and bring these sources, resources together and create something that's going to start transforming life in the third world as well, but not in a westernized consumeristic society, but something that's, that's going to really work for these people. So, yeah, and it's, it's just the connections, but first of all, people just have to see that there's something different. Yeah, I understand completely. Uh, we actually lost Xavier there for a moment. He had a brownout. Um, are you with us, Xavier? Yes, I am. Okay, good. Well, um, it's kind of your turn to talk. I know you missed like, the conversation going on, I guess, but you did listen to me read the chapter, right? Yes, I did. Uh, I did manage to hear that. Uh, it, it, was, uh, it was extremely well written. Um, I personally, after, you know, I'm listening to it, and I'm agreeing with almost everything that you're saying. Um, I, I got the part where you were mentioning about the community and how we have to start at least with one. And I think that's kind of where we need to, to focus as well. Uh, you know, keep the larger goal of the Venus Project in mind, but we also have to worry about getting the communities in line. And I think people will tend to gravitate more to what their neighbors are doing than somebody off in another in a far off area. So if we can get communities together, form, you know, realizing that they can work together or have the abundance and a better life, then the Venus Project is just the next step. It's, a, it's like the next logical step. And, and that's where I, I, I feel with the, um, this, you know, this community aspect of it, of consensus where everyone, everyone's needs are met and everyone is happy. I, I feel that's a, it's a it's a good positive step, and it's you know if you can get one community going, like you said, it, it's a domino effect. Others will follow. Okay, um, Eric uh, from China asked to be added to the call, so I'm going to go ahead and bring him on here. Um, but yeah, I think uh, just to make sure, though, Gilbert, did we cover everything that you were you were asking about, or did you still have anything else? Well, yeah. I, 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 I'm sorry, what was that? Yeah, I heard Eric calling in. Hi, Eric. Hi, Eric. Hey, guys. Um, can you mute for a moment, Eric? Because you're, you're kind of loud. A lot of calls there. There we go. All right, go ahead, Gilbert. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
just to comment on uh, what they, they, sorry, Kevin uh, just said, uh, I do agree with with uh, the part of, of of showing a, a different way of interacting with each other. I only have very very big problems with with the practical aspects, like I already mentioned, with engaging into the system and not being able to reflect reflect fully the potential of what life could be in a different type of system. And also other practical things, if you have these communities, and you mentioned, uh, Jack, that it would be in the initial stages, uh, so that would mean that at some point you would expect to be independent from the uh, dominant capitalistic system around you. That what, what if people would like to travel from this community? I mean, uh, I know uh, this is not meant offensive, but a lot of the Americans I talked to uh, I've never left the country. However, a lot of people around the world travel worldwide. You won't be able; these people won't be able to do that if you set up such a community. So, in a way, it would be going back instead of going forward for that part of the of the scenario. Yes, uh, excellent uh, observations. However, I, I just wish you had read the book uh, because then probably you wouldn't be answering these, asking these questions because these are the very concerns that as we met for three years, we were posing all these kinds of questions and coming up with a solution for them. So the, the very question that you just asked was something that we did consider. And as, as Neil reads further, it'll get to the um, description of how we handled that. Okay, well, yeah, I think I'm looking forward then to reading the rest of it. I understand. I think it's good that you brought this up, Gilbert, and it just means that we'll be looking for it in these future chapters. Oh, yes, I'm definitely waiting for it. My apologies, Jack. Uh, Neil uh, invited me to this discussion, and I had not uh, been able to reach your book as he invited me this afternoon, so you have my apologies. Uh, no, no apologies necessary. These are the kind of questions that I would be asking too, if I didn't have the kind of understanding that I do have by virtue of, of having been immersed in this for a long time. Uh, so, yeah, we, we considered these kinds of uh, questions in terms of the highest good for all approach. It's like, how can we really make this work for everyone? Because, of course, we want to travel and go places and see things and, and uh so we not only made the description of how that would happen in the first community, but also later in another chapter, it describes communities around the world after we transform the world, how easy it's going to be for anyone who wants to go and visit someplace else to be able to do so, including those people who never get to go anywhere because of because they're not living like the Western civilization is living, and that involves, of course, most of the world. Uh, so it's very unique that there are those of us who have the, the means to travel and see other things and visit other peoples, but when this gets spreads around the world, then it's easy for the entire world to live as one, as a cooperative planet where people have much more access to coming and seeing the Grand Canyon, for instance, if they want to, or, or going to you know, see Victoria Falls if they want to, and without having to 
you know, have the kind of resources that they have to have now in order to do this. Now, um, Eric, since you've been added to the call, um, go ahead and um, unmute and, uh, you know, what comments did you want to add to the conversation? Yeah, this is a, it's, it's funny because I just wrote something exactly for the website that we have relating to this because um, I think Jack is maybe familiar, but, you know, uh, for, for the listeners, I live in, in China, Shanghai. I've been, I left America six years ago and haven't been back. Uh, I've been traveling around mostly based out of China. But right now we're working on a, an initiative and I know it's a bit contrary, unfortunate, with, with what the Zeitgeist movement is doing. But I, I tend to agree with Jack, and, and, and I'd like to see a little more, I don't know, I, I'm seeing that there's this sort of contention within the movement where people want to start doing something, some kind of community. And unfortunately, Peter and, and other people, they, they shoot to shoot it down. I mean, I hope this is just taken as con constructive criticism. I don't want it to be a debate or anything, because I don't debate any longer. Um, essentially, they're shooting down any, oh, it's not the time, it'll be invaded, and I, I personally don't like this argument, and I, I would like to see, I, I totally agree that this, this, this spreading of awareness and communication is, is one, one of the utmost important things that needs to take place. So in that, in that aspect, I totally support the movement, but I firmly believe that what's going to transition is a combination of many things. One is the communication, but I still firmly believe that most people are not going to get the zeitgeist movement. Well, it's going to be a I have, people a, that I have a comment for that when you're done. But I, I think we need a combination of, like Jack says, people need to see it. They need to see some example, whether it's 100% RBE or 25% or they need to see people looking, you know, living this way. Like Jack, I, I, I agree 100% with Jack that people need to see it, and that's really going to be part of that. Let me, so, uh, I, yeah, go ahead. No, it's fine. Um, I, I know that you don't want to debate about this, but, and we've talked a little bit about this in other shows because we, we got into this with some of the other organizations that splintered off of the Zeitgeist Movement. First of all, it's not that you're not allowed to go do this. This is what I brought up on the first Next Evolution show we did was, in fact, when people say that they want to build stuff now, I usually send them to open source ecology or they give, I give them information about Jack Reed. It's not that the Zeitgeist Movement doesn't want to build things. It's that we are currently focused on education, and we want to have a lot more people on board. I mean, if you, if you listen to the way Roxanne and them talk, it's like they, they want to do the motion picture first because they feel that that's going to create a much larger you know, paradigm shift as far as, basically, we want to do something that impacts the world as much as, you know, 1984 impacted it, you know, uh, something on that level. Um, no, but I understand that, but, but my, I'm a little perplexed, and I know others are, about, about some people, there just seems to be a tone that it's, it's a bit negative towards, and, and I think you understand and can acknowledge that there seems to be a negative tone well, yeah, I'm, I'm getting to that. It's not ripping you apart and saying you're an ignorant, oh, that's stupid. Or not. So I'm, like I said, I would say, if, if you let me finish, I'll, I'll get to that. Um, <laughs> the reason that there is sometimes a negative tone is that some of the people who have wanted to take things in that direction in the Zeitgeist Movement, um, when Jacques and Roxanne have tried to politely explain to them that we're not at that stage yet, at least for what we want to be doing, they don't like the answer, and then they start to get really rude, and then eventually it just 
devolves into a fight, and it's like we don't fight with them, but they just they get really offended that you know that Jacques doesn't agree with them. And um, there's another major issue about all this, and we talk about that. I don't know if you've listened to any of my past archive shows, but one of my shows is about why we're not building cities. Now, mind you, you know what Jack is doing is much more small scale, and I think it'll work great. In fact, I'd love to participate in it. Um, but when we're talking about doing the city, it's kind of like right after the motion picture. It's not that it isn't being talked about, but it's that um, you have to make sure that everybody in your movement is on board. And me and Jack talked about that on the first show he was on, too. You know, he goes through a screening process where he makes sure that people have the right attitude about this. And uh-huh. we've already seen more than once that um, a lot of people in the zeitgeist movement think that they understand what we're talking about, but yes. they don't necessarily really understand. And it's, it's like the people, in many cases, like the ones who reacted the way they did, it's like when Jacques didn't agree with them, then their answer was to start inventing conspiracy theories about Jacques, start making angry oh. YouTube videos. And the only reason this is relevant is that it proves that these people's maturity level was not ready for a city anyway. If they're going right. to think like so, about it, then, you know, and now, but we're talking about a global scale, you know, how are we going to screen 400,000 members? And we don't even feel that's close to enough. And, I mean, that's why I support what Jack is doing, and there's no reason that members of the Zeitgeist Movement can't help him. As far as what the Zeitgeist Movement is focused on right now, we're trying to decide in a war of information to as many people as possible. And then that causes little things like, you know, what Jack Reed is doing and open source ecology to get more attention along the way. And then when the time comes, I think part of the problem is is that Jack, you know, Jock, Jock thinks that we're looking at the possibility of some kind of future catastrophe economically soon. And he is right that these communities, like if we built a city, we've gotten enough people behind it. It is, it is a concern that we have that, you know, if an apocalypse happens, you know, essentially people who are um, – not doing well are going to basically come over and plunder your city. The idea would be to try to get more people on board, more people understanding the direction, and especially the value system, so that when such a collapse happens, as we've talked about in the past, you know, major changes in governmental systems come about after major collapses. That's, it's a calamity, just like Jack was talking about earlier. Some people are not going to really get on board until like the last minute after the world is already screwed up. And what we're hoping for is to get this idea into as many heads as possible before such a thing happens. Because if we think about it, you know, the American Revolution led to people trying, you know, getting rid of feudalism and, you know, going into a capitalist system. The French Revolution was another example of a major governmental system change. The Russian Revolution was the time that they tried communism. I mean, they did a terrible job, but, you know, um, National Socialism took power in Germany because of, you know, the economic situation there. And we want to be able to get this idea into people's heads so that when such a situation occurs, and he feels it's very likely that people have another idea to try that's not going to be, well, let's reboot capitalism, because that's what most people are saying. We'll just, you know, switch to free market and everything will be fine. You know, we don't want to go back and trying communism again and have that be the wrong answer. And we don't want to go into socialism if that's not the right answer. And you know, it's kind of a matter of at this point, there are not enough people thinking along these lines. And I think that what Jack is doing will complement what we are doing. It doesn't need to be an exclusion. Exactly. That's what I'm just hoping is a little more. 
And it's unfortunate. I've, I've followed some of the things that have happened, and I try not to get caught up in, in it because, one, I don't need to be angry. I don't need to be discouraged. And I'm sorry that, you know, that that's happened. It's, I guess we could all say it's inevitable that these things happen because, like you said, there's probably a mass amount of people who are supposedly members that really just don't get it um, or it, 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 as much as they should. But the only thing I'd like to say is that I, I think they're interdependent. I mean, we always talk about, you know, this oneness and interdependency. And, the, I mean, putting those, those heady things aside, which unfortunately are inevitable, um, just a, a little more recognition of, of that they're, they're the interdependency of all these things, like all the things, open source ecology and, you know, even um, things like couch surfing. I always use this example to, to uplift people about how this RBE is, in fact, emerging. And people say, oh, I always, I really hope it happens. And, and I feel positive in many ways. I see it happening already on so many levels and in so many different areas. So, I mean, I don't know if anyone, couchsurfing.org, you know, you people can, we're talking about travel and how people would love to travel. And, you, you know, this is an amazing thing that's happened. It's a network, and you can, if, if anybody's unfamiliar with it, I'd yeah, recommend absolutely. it. It's a good example of, of how it's emerging. But to answer, like, talking about the topic, if you don't mind, mm-hmm. I just wrote something about this because, we're, you know, like I said, I, I have the situation of, you know, I have, most Americans don't travel, that's true, but I've traveled a lot and I've lived outside. But right now we're looking at doing a, a community, um, starting many things and many initiatives in Argentina. So this whole topic of the documentations that you would need to let people travel is, is very is something that's actually because I would be a quote-unquote foreigner and my Chinese wife would be a quote-unquote foreigner in Argentina. So, I mean, we have to, you know, why are we jumping the gun? I mean, unfortunately, we have to operate within this system. So I have three phases of a community because I feel that one important aspect of this community to really make an example is to make it dynamic and international as possible, to show the people around, like, we don't have this petty nationalism and all that. So phase one, we have to, unfortunately, set up some traditional type organizations that would protect us, that would do two things. One, protect us from having to pay a lot of taxes. And number two, enable the community and our organization to give the necessary documents, visas, and immigration. That would be, we have to do it. I don't see any way around it. Okay. Phase um, two would be the promotion of autonomy. We, I mean, and I'm thinking, I'm not talking about a, a cataclysmic collapse. I don't, I'm hoping, I still have some hope that it won't turn out that way. It'll be a sort of controlled, and it, it'll look different, but phase two, then we have to seek autonomy from the local and state. And then finally, again, if there's not a total collapse, we need to have some international global recognition. So maybe we need passports. Well, that's, uh, we're, that's getting a little bit ahead of where the conversation currently is. Um, uh-huh. But, um, you know, you want to talk to me about that sometime. That almost sounds like a topic for an entire show unto itself. Um, we're, yeah, it we're, is. We're now down to the uh, to the uh, the second or the the end of the first hour mark. I want to make sure that everybody uh, like uh, Xavier. Did you have any further comments before we continue? Uh, no, I mean it's. It, I definitely 
would well, I guess I'd want to address the, the point that uh, a lot of people do see the zeitgeist movement as uh, exclusionary, but that's been the total opposite of my experience that I found. I found that we, you know, we've talked to people. We 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 really go out and we reach to these people and we we do listen to them. Um, but at the same time, you know, just because their ideas don't mesh with ours, we're not we're not necessarily saying they're wrong. We're just saying that's just not what what we're about. And and so. Some people may see that as as, a, as an exclusion from other, to other people, but it's just it's just not where we are. I mean, some people want to go out and kill people. That's not what we're about, you know. Like <laughs> these these are just things that we don't want to do. And you know, if you're going to go out and do them, so long as they're legal, fine, go ahead. But that's just we have we have a, a goal, we have a, a plan that we want to do, and that's just where we're going. We, we want to take it that way. We fully support going off and creating these small communities. And, and as long as these communities are, are keeping in with the ideals of, of the Venus Project where you know, the mindset has to change, the people's values have to change, that's, that's perfect. We'll talk about them. But there's people that want to set up these communities as you know, a separate entity where they're totally excluded from everybody else. And that's where the problem is. A lot of these people just want to create these communities that are cut off from the rest of society without realizing that you still have to work within the society for now. So let's change society to make it better. Right. Now, uh, Gilbert? Um, I'd better not. I have a lot of things to say. Uh, I try to keep my commentary very respectful to Jack's work as they were, were discussing that. But when Eric started talking, I had a lot of things I wanted to address. But you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll pass on that for now. Okay, no problem. Um, Jack, did you have anything further before we read again? Uh, just that uh, I wouldn't want to do anything out of fear. Uh, as, as we know from, from uh, movies such as What the Bleak Do We Know, uh, that, that we get what we focus on. And, and my focus and our focus is on loving and ease and grace to make this transition. I don't feel like there's going to be any catastrophe other than there might be melting down of the system, but I see that as a positive thing in terms of people the, man, the, the people are going to be looking for something different, and I think that's a, a positive catalyst. And, and uh there are a lot of intentional communities out there that are doing wonderful things and providing a really wonderful uh, experience for people. And what Community Planet intends to do is more in line with, uh, I think, the zeitgeist idea that we want to create something on the scale that could potentially change the entire planet. So the in that way, I think we're looking at it uh, in a very similar way. Okay. Yeah, no, and I agree that we have way more in common overall. Um, and I think it's important, uh, um, I think it's important that people recognize that it's not really just about, we're, it's not like we're dependent on a collapse. I mean, we are working in these directions. And, you know, as I said, in my conversations with uh, uh, Roxanne about this, you know, we are talking about the city is on the agenda it's just a matter of when we get to that point, we're hoping to have, you know, millions of people who are thinking like this. 
Um, and if we can do that, and you know, also if we can kind of put these millions of people through the education process until they really grasp the concept entirely, you know, that's when you know efforts like Jack's, for example, will you know obviously get a great source of you know recruitment. You know, it's 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 not. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is is that you know. I, I totally support what Jack is doing or he wouldn't be on the show. So it's not like that. One of the reasons that I feel that I, I like what Jack is doing more than what some of the other groups that have tried to suggest these sorts of things, you know, have is that when I talk to Jack, I know that Jack has the maturity to be able to pull this off. Some of the people that we've interacted with in the Zeitgeist movement who have wanted to go that route are obviously not quite aware of some of the bigger social implications in order to make this work. You know, like I said, we hammered that out, you know, in the beginning of the show that he and I were in was that, you know, Jack understands that unless you have the right value structure, it's not going to work. You know, um, and I don't think necessarily that everybody in the Zeitgeist movement fully grasps what that means. Um, so unless anybody has anything final, I'm going to go back to reading. I, I would like to just emphasize that point because it's such a big part of it, but there's so much emphasis on the form and the way things are going to look and how things are going to operate. And uh, the leading expert in the United States on intentional communities is a woman named Diana Lee Christian who's visited most of the communities. She's, she's done workshops at most of the communities. So she really knows what's happening out there. And a lot of the communities have trouble with decision-making, even as higher consciousness as, as the people have in holding the intellectually the, these ideas of cooperation, the ideas of the highest good of all. But I wouldn't want to try and start something on the level of, of you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of people without having the people in place who can screen for the consciousness and the maturity uh, and the and the evolution that people need to have inside them to really demonstrate this, because otherwise you can have the perfect form, and if you have people in there who theoretically say, yes, this I believe in, but do not have that maturity of consciousness where they can avoid getting into the squabbles as people are prone to do, then... I think it would be very difficult to pull that off. And so that's why a screening process, which you're going to get into in the description, uh, I feel is such an important part of this because when I keep talking about this consciousness of the highest good for all, people have to have that consciousness. And it's not just people who say they, they have it but can't hold to it, but people who demonstrate that. Absolutely. Yeah, can I say something? Yeah, go ahead. I mean, I, I feel that I'm not even ready for anything. I mean, I'm, I, I don't want to sound elitist. I think we really need training. Uh, we can. I agree with Jack. I mean, Jack, I, I'll be honest. I Working with what I work on right now with some of the closest like-minded people, we have problems. And um, this is going to be a huge thing. I mean, it's, it's totally different from what we've grown up and what we see around us. So we can ourselves think that we're, we get it, but it, it, this is still probably one of the hardest things. The other stuff, the, the, the abundant food, everything, making the food and the AI, that's the easy stuff. This, to me, is going to be the hardest and 
the consciousness of the greatest good, that's good, but actually working and making it happen, I don't know if I'm ready or most proficient in it. Well, one of the, as- one of the aspects about this, and we, we brought this up a long time ago on the, in, on the show about why we're not ready, um, and we had a personality within the movement, for example, who one of the things that he said was that he was only interested in doing this if it did not in any way hinder his personal comfort. Now, this person was a chapter administrator, and I'm not going to go much deeper into it other than to point out that we have people in the movement who think that they know what's going on, even so much as to go so far as to even be an activist who don't grasp the most basic concepts. The guy was very big on capitalism. I was like, how did you get involved in all this and not know that we weren't capitalists? You know, he was big on his 2.5 kids and his honey baked ham and his, and his Humvee. And, you know, just, I was like, I, I don't understand how this person even got in here, you know, why they, you know, and how they missed all of that. So it's, it's not like I'm making it up that there isn't, you know, that there is a problem when it comes to people not grasping this. And I'm glad that you pointed out that you don't even feel that you're necessarily ready. And, and there's another thing that needs to be pointed out, and this is another aspect of what can happen, because, like, being somebody who's on the front line in the trenches debating this on a regular basis, I can tell you that the first thing that these people do is they quote failed communes, the various communes that have failed in the past. And one of the things they all have in common is that they did not do what Jack is suggesting. They did not, you know, screen for people, you know, they, and in most cases, a lot of them broke up because they, they did not have that everyone, you know, they, they did not have the greatest good for all as their motive. You know, and it, that's one of the big problems is that it's, it, this is a really dicey thing. It's not just about, you know, like, this is something Roxanne pointed out. You, you can't just build self-sustaining systems and think that that's going to be enough because we could take people, you know, in, a, in our society now and put them in a self-sustaining environment and they would definitely start to change. But, you know, there was a lot of them when they would have so many social, you know, mental hangups could be a real problem in the long run. You know, it takes a while for somebody to really, you know, to do that, but all it takes is a small group of people with the wrong intentions to destroy something beautiful. That's what I studied when I, when I looked at the various failed communes, is that in most cases it wasn't like it was a majority of the people. There was just a few influential people who could destroy these things. And that's one of the reasons why we want to get beyond the point where this is even necessary. So, um, it's uh, 13 minutes into the first hour. I'm going to go ahead and start reading because I want to get to some of the stuff that Jack was saying, unless you had anything further, Jack. Uh, no, read it on. Okay. All right. Um, let me continue. Okay. How do we share our abundance? One of the first questions a group of people living in any community needs to ask is how to define their financial interrelationships. This question gets answered by default in our current world economy because we just continue the old everyone-for-themselves paradigm without exploring other possibilities. Also, wealth is typically defined as a person's net worth, but isn't wealth so much more than that? An ailing, ailing and or depressed billionaire would probably give all of his or her material wealth in exchange for health and happiness. Recognizing that abundance in our lives means far more than material wealth in our question concerning how we interrelate with respect to wealth, we choose to ask how we can all live together abundantly. This planet could be a paradise for all of us to share. 
It's very abundant, a very abundant place to live if we would just make that choice. As I stated in the previous chapter on the highest good, sharing resources with, has incredible advantages. We can also, um, we can also, I'm sorry, we have so, so much more than we pool our resources, or when we pool our resources. We currently tie up so much of our wealth in individual possessions that we individually use. If we can redefine wealth as use and access rather than as possessions, then we can really cut down on our consumerism while at the same time having access to much, much more than we would individually have. We do not need each to, to each um, own a land, uh, I'm sorry, a lawnmower, a complete set of tools, laundry appliances, vacuum cleaners, etc. We only need access to these things. Although there is nothing comparable in scope to the model communities we're proposing, the 60 members of the Twin Oaks community were living on only $250 per month each in 1986, and the 14 members of Alpha Farm in Oregon were living comfortably on $140 per month each. Through sharing resources, we could not only have use and access of far more things than we normally would, but we would be using far less of our own financial resources, not to mention using far less of the planet's resources. We also don't need as many, good, as many people laboring to produce the quantity of material goods that we consume. In designing a model community, one of the most challenging questions to consider is what, to what extent do we share our individual and group wealth? Even if we eventually headed towards an egalitarian model, for our first model community, we may want to create a system where people with the diverse economic backgrounds, choices, and lifestyles can still participate together as we, as we transition from the old everyone-for-themselves model. In the transition period, we think it is important to provide for these individual choices while at the same time capitalizing on the tremendous economic and lifestyle benefits through living cooperatively. On the other hand, we want to take care of each other as a family. Oh, I'm sorry, I, misspelled. I read that wrong. On the one hand, we want to take care of each other as a family. On the other hand, sharing everything equally might be asking too much of so many people at first. That step would probably be further down the line when people can see how well it works to live cooperatively. With the dual purpose being to create an abundant com community that is a joy to live in and to provide a working prototype to encourage other communities to spring up around the planet, we know that we have to create an economic model that will make sense and work for almost everyone. At first, because our planning group for the Community Planet Foundation's model was sharing-oriented, we considered what would happen if we all shared equally. We felt that we, the planning group, could all do it, and through sharing resources could all enjoy a very abundant lifestyle. However, we also knew that some people might be turned off to this, people who, at least at first, might individually want more than others. As we had always worked with the design situations where everyone can win, we came up with a unique solution. Because we see ourselves as one family, we decided that the land, structures, and communally used or provided resources belong to and are the responsibility of all residents. As we look at the damage we've done to the planet, in retrospect, it looks truly crazy that people have been able to do whatever they wanted to the environment, regardless of the highest good of all. When individual interests can do what they want with the land, water, and air, as opposed to planning as a group with the, with the welfare of generations to come, taken into consideration from the start, then we have a recipe for the life-threatening environmental problems we now face. Instead, we need to design land usage to work for everyone. We need to again think of and act towards land and nature as being sacred. If we don't do this, housing and cities get stuffed together, 
nature and productive land upon which to grow food disappears, pollution becomes a major problem, and concrete spread, spreads like a seal over the land while, while, the walking, I'm sorry, while walking disappears. This is our world. It belongs to all of us, including future generations, and we need to plan and share it and its resources with ultimate care for all life in order to keep it intact for our children and our children's children. In regards to housing, group ownership becomes a very freeing concept. As the system is now, people can become stuck in housing situations due to finances. Many have moved to suburbia with long commutes and the necessity of jumping into a car to do almost anything. We usually also have no idea who our neighbors are and no real connection to them as people. Because buying and selling is at the mercy of the ebb and flow of the market, people get trapped in locations sometimes for years while their lives get progressively more isolated. Then because they need, the, they need their 9 to 5 jobs to continue their lifestyle, they get trapped on the treadmill. Our model highest good community would provide basic human needs to all residents. These benefits include food, shelter, health needs, recreational and creative equipment and supplies, communication systems, educational opportunities, and transportation. However, if a person chose to work outside the community and the per then that person earned more than the average cost per resident cost of living, the resident would only be obligated to contribute 10% of, of, of that excess amount to the community. Likewise, as residents working within the community and making money outside of it, i.e. through outside investments, would contribute 10% of their outside income. With the above system, we felt that all residents would have a baseline lifestyle at a very high level, and the people who want even more could not only still have that, but also their increased riches would benefit the whole community as well. As I wrote earlier in the highest good chapter, the now prosperous Mondragon area of Spain is an example of people working together for the benefit of all. Another example of the value of cooperation is the kibbutzim in Israel. I'm sure I've said that incorrectly, so I apologize. With less than 4% of the population living on about 20, 250 kibbutzim, they still produce 40% of Israel's agriculture and 7% of Israel's industrial exports. At the same time, they provide all the food and housing for their members, as well as the medical needs, education and entertainment and recreation. With an entire community planned from the beginning to be, from the beginning to be in harmony with all life, with the sharing of resources and with our renewed sharing with nature and with each other, we can do even better in our model community in terms of the abundance of our lives on all levels. The Community Planet Foundation's overview description for how do we share our abundance is as follows. Again, there are many possibilities. So this particular description is just our attempt at painting a possible picture based on the highest good for all. Because a friend of mine said that the guideline portion of the description read a little dry, I tried to spruce it up a bit by interjecting some non-italicized comments. How do we share our abundance? We in the community planet operate under the premise that there is enough wealth on the planet for everyone to have a very abundant standard of living. Historically, the problem in achieving, in achieving this has been in the distribution of wealth. With people tying up so many resources in the accumulation and protection of possessions, much of the planet's wealth goes unused. When we share a community, we do not need tennis courts, swimming pools, and the beautiful gardens of our own. We just need access to those facilities within the community. Likewise, we do not need a car for every person. We just need enough cars so that everyone who needs to drive away from our community has access to one. We can collectively save a huge sum of money by sharing our abundance on many levels. 
Possibly wealth in our times needs to be redefined as use and access rather than ownership. We also have created a system in our community where people with diverse economic backgrounds, choices, and lifestyles can still participate together. In Community Planet, we think it is important to provide for these individuals uh, individual choices while at the same time capitalizing on the tremendous economic and lifestyle benefits through living co cooperatively. Essences, how do we share our abundance? By supporting our growth through an attitude of dynamic openness. It's amazing the abundance that can come to us when we are open to the gifts that God has in store for us. By sharing our wealth as one family, we must eventually recognize that we are all sisters and brothers on this planet. By sharing out of, a, sharing out of our overflow, by sharing on the basis of need, when will we finally learn that the needs of the one are the concern of everyone? By being joyful givers on all levels. Giving joyfully and being of service are excellent ways to be abundant. By recognizing that the source of our abundance is in our inner qualities of love and joy, we need to realize that the quality of our lives has more to do with what is happening inwardly than what is happening externally. Guidelines. The land, structures, and communally used or provided resources, i.e. vehicles, furniture, equipment, etc., belong to and are the responsibility of all residents. We don't need the burden of so much stuff. It's all ours. Residents have ownership of their personal possessions, which may include furniture, equipment, vehicles, etc., which the residents have individually purchased. But you can still use my oldies CDs. I can't listen to all of them at once. The living structures belong to the community, and the residents ha may have lifetime tenancy. Let's free ourselves up without losing any of the real advantages. The community provides basic human needs to all residents at a fair and reasonable exchange rate. These benefits include food, shelter, health needs, recreational facilities and equipment, communication systems, and transportation. Every resident working in the community will earn enough to provide for their living and personal expenses. Until we truly take care of one another, it's still an everyone-for-themselves world. Residents working outside the community contribute 10% of their income over X amount months to the community general fund. X equals the average cost of living per resident. They have the option of contributing more than 10%. Residents working within the community and also making money outside of it, i.e. through investments, contribute 10% of their outside income. They have the option of contributing more than 10%. I'll be sharing all of mine and getting so much more in return. They do not receive the monthly income if their income is greater than the amount of the cost of living plus the monthly income. Requisitions are available for emergencies, training, education, etc. Excess community income by the process of consensus can be put into the general fund, put into special projects, or used in any other way that the community decides. This must be our decision and not the decision of special interest groups. Incoming residents give a non-refundable entrance fee to the general fund of the community. The guideline is that the fee is large enough to show commitment, but not too large as to exclude people. When a person chooses to leave and get reestablished outside the community, the community, to the best of its ability, will support that person to get reestablished. That's a lot to uh, take in, I imagine, for the listeners, but I'm sure we'll talk about it all in a couple minutes here. Think of the impact that redefining wealth as use and access would have on crime. People currently don't know what to do about crime. We talk about harsher punishment and more enforcement, but for creating a lifestyle with abundance, opportunity, nurturing, and a loving based on sharing model would reduce crime much more effectively. Because of the resource sharing in the community, crimes of property become almost meaningless. 
What can a person really feel when they have access to virtually everything the community has to offer? Also, living abundantly has less to do with the consumption of material goods than it does with the quality of our lives on all levels. I know of one family of four that was living in a cabin in California's Sierra Nevada mountains on less than $10,000 a year. The husband then got a job in San Francisco Bay Area that paid $200,000 a year. However, with all of this income could buy, uh, with all of this that this income could buy, the family came to the realization that the quality of their lives and their abundance was far greater when they were living in their cabin. Interestingly, without our, while our consumption has increased 45% since 1970, the index of social health reports that during this same time, the quality of our lives has dropped 51%. Consumption and materialism do not equate with abundance and often are the antithesis of what the abundance truly is. A 1995 Merck Family Fund survey indicated that Americans would be happier with lifestyles based on gratifying personal relationships rather than on consumption. According to the U.S. News & World Report poll, 51% would rather have more free time even if it means less money, me included. One downside of what we typically think is a wealth of as wealth is that most of us get stuck in the treadmill of having to slave to perpetuate our lifestyles, and that really drains the life out of most people. We've been chasing a concept of freedom that we've thought of as having enough money to do what we want when we want, to the extent that we want. The trouble is that in an everyone-for-themselves model, this isn't possible for the vast majority of people. If there's not enough money in circulation to pay the national debt, then there is a finite amount of what people think of as wealth, thus producing, and, and, uh, producing the haves and the have-nots. We've bought into having lots of possessions because we think they create freedom through security. However, freedom is anything but being stuck on the treadmill, and wealth is really so much more than, the money, than money or material goods. Part of the essence of freedom is having fun and pleasure, and living in our community will be incredibly fun and rewarding on all levels, as we heal the alienation and isolation that have characterized our civilization and we move into being nurtured by nature and by each other. That really is our divine heritage. Let's see here. Okay. All right. Well, it's uh, 30 minutes of reading again. Um, can I go ahead and start with you, Jack? Um, yeah, so that describes a lot of what we're thinking about in terms of you know, this, it's been repeated several times here, but we really need to redefine wealth as use and access because a person doesn't need to own anything to be incredibly wealthy. And it's just so the consumption that we all have to have things and we all have to have our little fences and our yards and our individual houses, even as our needs and housing continue to change in a community where you own the whole community. It's now, I, I don't just own my individual house. I own the whole community and you own the whole community. And how many cars do we need for 500 people? We need maybe 30 cars, maybe, the tremendous savings involved in that, not only in terms of as we interact with the outside world, not only monetarily, but also what we're doing with the environment itself as we use so many fewer resources because we're having so 
we're getting so much more use out of those things that we do have through the process of sharing. Yeah, that's actually something that uh, Peter talks about during the um, orientation guide is that, you know, you don't really need as much stuff as you think you need. Like he talks about the, the various things that people have like in their, their uh, garage. Like I got these golf clubs. I maybe use them once every three months. If that, I may just own them and they may just be sitting there. You know, I have these bicycles. I may not even use them very often. You know, wouldn't it just make more sense to have bicycles next to the parks that you want to ride through anyway? You know, um, you know, and I look at, like, the majority of stuff that people have. I mean, I'm a minimalist by nature. I don't really have a lot of stuff. But, you know, that there's. I remember in particular, you know, um, having to go at it with my uh, soon-to-be ex-wife because I couldn't even secure for myself a single drawer in in our room in basically out of that was out of the entire dresser and the entire armoire and the entire walk-in closet <laughs> because she had so much stuff you know and she thought she needed it all and you couldn't get her to throw away anything even if she wasn't using it and hadn't touched it for months um, I actually read a story or not a story it was like a, an article in a newspaper once about how to really you know clean yourself up if you're a pack rat and one of the things they pointed out was that if you haven't been touching something for months, try throwing it away. You're going to find that you don't want it anymore. You don't miss it. You probably don't even think about it, you know. Um, and that's, you know, when you talk about use and access, I also think about, like, the, uh, the public pools and stuff like that, you know. Um, I, like, in my community here where my home is, there's a, there's a public pool, you know, and because it's the community pool, I don't, I'm not the one who's responsible for cleaning it. And, you know, I wouldn't mind if I was part of a, a large community to clean it. But but my point is, is that it's, it's, it's so much less hassle, you know, for me to not have my own pool. If it was just mine, it would be just my responsibility to keep it clean. And inevitably, that means i got to pay somebody else to do it. Um, but uh, let me go ahead and uh, bring up Gilbert, since he's burning to respond. <laughs> Uh huh. Yeah, definitely. I've been uh, saving it up since uh, since Eric came on. So basically, yeah, again, this this chapter had a lot of uh, things I could identify with, as uh, Jack mentioned in the last couple of points that I brought up. That uh, at least a part of the monetary use of these communities would be explained. Um, okay. Well, I have listened to uh, the explanation at least in this part, and uh, I have another big question. Um, what I heard explained is that that items would be shared and that they would be, well, you could use the items within the community, which, of course, is, is, is a good thing. Uh, there is no sense in having more uh, lawnmowers than, than needed by the community. Sure, that concept works. But like I said, I think very globally, so I, I refer back to the explanation that you had with more communities starting up using this principle. Now, I see a very big issue here because uh, within the current system of economics, we have a pattern that we recognize as cyclical consumption, which uh, in, very layman, in a very layman explanation means that uh, products need to cycle, and they need to cycle fast, because if they don't, our system would collapse. So basically, what would happen if these communities would all share the same practice and wouldn't generate 
uh, well, enough cyclical consumption, the effect you will have by actually having these communities expand is that you'll collapse the system at a very, very blatant uh, suggestion, but 50%, if you're at 50% of what you're trying to achieve, your system would collapse. And yeah, I, I know, Eric, it's not fun to hear, and sometimes we do address it very negatively, but yes, uh, the local communities that might at that point will be running in a in, in a nice way, maybe uh, good local ag agriculture might be able to sustain themselves. If you have a lot of other people who won't won't have the same access to these resources, they'll you'll be the first one they'll they'll come to to gain access. So it uh, there might be more to the story here because, like you mentioned before, the book does explain a lot of things. But I from what I've heard till now, I feel this part and this consequence of acting this way, although I do fully uh, support the way uh, it's described uh, and I do really understand that we don't need more of something if we aren't going to use it, I do think that with it, giving the current economic system, um, well, understanding how it works right now and relating that back to, our, to, the, to the whole plan as you have, have presented it, I feel that in this uh, chapter uh, of the book, it hasn't been taken into enough consideration, certainly because of the implications it could have to behave in such a way. And I don't mean behave bad, but I'm, I'm referring to it economically. Also, uh, well, let me stop there. As I asked a bunch of questions last time, and that wasn't very <laughs> nice. Okay. Um, well, uh let me go on to uh, Xavier first, just to make sure, because he hasn't had as much time. And by the way, Xavier, um, you have a show tonight that's coming on right after mine, right? That's correct, yeah. Uh, it's, it's on in the chat room there. It's, we're basically going to be talking about uh, how to keep the momentum and uh, uh, motivation for each individual chapters and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I found like during the past month when you were away for a bit, um, the motivation and, and momentum just seemed to kind of drop off a bit. I'm glad you're back on the air and, uh, you know, we're just going to talk about that and how, how we can keep that going. But in regards to uh, this, this chapter, um, one of the things that I've been finding um, Could I ask well, a question first? Oh, oh yeah, go ahead, Jack. Uh, before we move past what was, what was just said, I'm trying to understand exactly uh, uh, what was meant by uh, products need to cycle fast and, and the cyclical consumption and why that was important for, for that to happen. I'm, I'm just trying to understand without glossing over what was said because maybe I have a response to that, but I just didn't understand it, uh, what was just said, enough to respond to it. Oh, okay. Gilbert, do you want to clarify? Well, maybe, maybe one of the other listeners, if they understood it, they could say it uh, maybe in different words. I don't know if anybody else understood what Gilbert was saying. Um, well, I, I, can, I can definitely explain it. Um, right now, currently, the way the economy works is uh, you know, in order to keep the jobs going and, the, and the, the money flowing through the system, products are designed to to be consumed and tossed away. Um, and so, with your 
community design where we're using less, we're not we're no longer consuming and therefore not um, beneficial to to the way the economy currently works. Uh, so if everybody started going to this less you know consuming less style, it's not going to have a negative effect on us, but it's going to have a negative effect on those people who rely on the the jobs and and you know the resources being harvested from their from their communities. You know, for example, if we stop buying Nike shoes, all of a sudden people in the Philippines are out of work, and 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 they their lifestyle goes down while ours you know remains relatively the same. Well, hold, yeah, hold, that's what I hold on a second. Is that what you were getting at, Gilbert? No, it's part of it, but it, it doesn't touch it completely because, yes, it might, the way Xavier, and you did a good job, uh, he, he explained it, and while it might affect uh, some people in some countries, sure. What I'm trying to say, though, is if this is the the model on which the system is based, we don't even, we, we it goes a lot further than that because you're actually contributing to the collapse of the system because a lot of the economy currently is based on a lot of, of these products that are, are being, uh, well, cyclically consumed. So what I'm trying to say is if, if that is the, the model your, your community is, is based on, sorry, I know you're burning to respond, uh, then at 50-50 already, you would have collapsed uh, most of the system and therefore a lot of people won't be even be able to have the luxury to take the time to grasp the concept of what you're doing. You know, it's, it's interesting that the, the corporatism, the international corporations that are, you know, that, are, that have so many of these jobs like Nike as an example and so many other things, these corporations are exploiting the people in the third world. And what we're saying here is that this system that we've got needs to collapse. It needs to collapse. We need to not have more jobs. We need to have fewer jobs. We need to have different jobs. And part of it is we need to also start to take care of people in the third world who a lot of the people who've got absolutely nothing. So we're definitely trying to create a model where we're creating far fewer nonsense products and nonsense jobs that don't need to exist, that only are, are existing to, to perpetrate this current absurd economic system that we find ourselves in that is consuming the resources of the planet. We need to think of this planet as a partner in, in this, and until people get that the major resources that we're using up, we're using up because of the every person for themselves system, yeah, you're right. We have absolutely no intention of supporting this current economic system. What we intend to do is to create a model of a completely different way of cooperating together and living together that can transition us out of this lack that's taking place as people's lifestyles are going downhill, not in the United States, but in so many places in the world. Uh, and, and for many, many billions of people, life has not been working for them for generations and generations. And it's this system that is perpetrating that. We need to change the system. So you're absolutely right. Uh, we we absolutely want to change this this model, and we're not supporting. Not that we're against it, 
but we just need to demonstrate something different so that people can see that there is a different approach. And if we create this model, then this model can be copied all over the world. And that's what's got to happen to change the status for these people. But these, you know, the corporations are doing these people no favors in these, in these countries. I've seen so many uh, films about this and read so many things about this that, you know, we think like, oh, we're giving them jobs. But then you go and check out what's happening with these people and they're like slaves. Mm-hmm. Of course. I mean, yeah, sure. All that you just said, there is no disagreement in there. I think it's not a mean manifest, but I think it's a little besides the point. I was trying to address the part of your proposed system that I see as, as not being addressed well enough in, in the book because you'll have that effect. Uh, unfortunately, the motivations are right, and yes, what these corporations are doing is very bad. It doesn't do any good to our planet. That, I mean, we should, we're totally on one line. What I was saying is that by acting that way, it will actually have a negative effect because we wouldn't be ready. And I heard both Eric and you say that you don't think a collapse would happen. However, and uh, well, you just said that, that you think that's needed, but I heard earlier that both of you don't think it would happen. I'm just trying to say that if this is the actual route, that your communities would develop and they would multiply, you're going to cause it because because you'll be disturbing the cyclical consumption, which actually starts yeah. our economy going. Let me weigh in here a little bit, Gilbert. Um, I'm actually kind of of the opinion that consumption, uh, the cyclical consumption is destroying itself already um, and that what we're going to be looking at here actually is that the, what you're talking about is already going to happen anyway. Even if Jack did nothing, and even if we did nothing, the worker is becoming less and less important. And as automation and technological unemployment take hold, when the, when, the, when the dust settles, if we're still living in a primarily capitalist, every man for himself system, those people don't give a, give a damn at all about what that's going to do to us. It's going to happen anyway. With Jack's suggesting, and what, I, you know, what we're suggesting, is providing an alternative so that when that happens, because it's going to happen anyway, we need people to stop thinking that they need it. For example, they need to have a job to survive. We need to get that out of the issue. Okay? We need to get people thinking about how they can work together as communities. Because at the end of the day, when, corporate, when the corporatocracy is finished abandoning us, because that's what it's in the middle of doing now, we're going to have nobody but ourselves. We're going to have to work together. So... You know, um, I guess what I'm getting at is, is that I don't feel that what Jack is doing is going to cause anything other than what would happen if, you know, if by some chance we had this, like, you know, this is also kind of a, an extreme possibility that, you know, he's going to create a critical mass that's just going to cause, you know, the, you know every, all these things to pop up everywhere. I don't think it's going to happen that way, but let's say that it did. The only major difference between what's going to happen anyway and what actually uh, you know, wh- what would happen with Jack's suggestion is that now people would have a solution of, you know, you don't really need the corporatocracy to survive. You can live like this. Come check it out. You know, um, and, and also it, it's like, I guess it's like I look at this right now as I watch, like, the Michigan economy disintegrate, you know, I'm looking at trying to find ways to get myself as self-sustaining as possible because, 
in, in the Michigan economy, as, you know, the, the corporations move all the labor out of the country, you know, it's becoming more and more hard for me and my roommates to survive, you know, um, and rather than, and it's, it's silly, you know, that that's the case, because there's more than enough valuable resources, just like all the stuff that Jacques said about the Great Depression. There was more than enough stuff, but, not, but people didn't have the fictional pieces of paper, so they couldn't go buy it, you know, um, where, you know, and whereas... Jack wants to get people into communities where um, people have already recognized that the rest of the system is diseased and have alternatives, and more specifically, a family unit to fall back on. We've talked about how the, the family structure has basically been disintegrating and how that actually helps the elite of the capitalists, the neoconservatives, so, so to speak, because then, then you absolutely are dependent on your boss. If I get fired today... You know, you know, there was a time when it wouldn't even be a question. If, if I needed somewhere to go, I'd go over to my mom's house. It wouldn't even be an issue. Unfortunately, she's passed away. But for a lot of my friends, that attitude was never there. You know, you get fired. Your, your parents may even, you know, at least in the United States, look at you and say, well, I don't have any room for you. I'm sorry. I guess you'll have to go to somewhere else. I mean, my wife's mother told her that she should go to a homeless shelter when she needed somewhere to go not long ago. You know, so that's basically is um, what, what I was going on about this, is that these problems already exist, and they're going to happen anyway. We need to have a way to field that. And, and um, I think part of the problem that we're running into here is that there are some aspects of the transition that have not really been ironed out um, and, but, you know, by the zeitgeist movement, and that's largely because it's, it's an evolving situation. It's not that we don't have the capacity to figure out a plan. It's that we don't know the circumstances yet. We don't know what the collapse will it be. Will it be an ecological collapse? Will it be an economic collapse? We know one of the two is going to happen. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. We know that we cannot sustain the linear consumption cycle on the planet with finite resources, Ecologically, it's impossible. It can't go on forever. It, you know, by some people's recollection, it can't even go on for much longer. Okay? So, you know, just take these things into account as we talk. I think that this has been a great conversation because we are asking each other difficult questions. Um, and so, now, Eric, you haven't had a chance to talk for a while. Do you want to go ahead? Um, yeah, I'm here. Um, it's it's good discussion, I, and I think we're. I'd like to pose something. I mean, just just a thought um, for the ones that you know. I, I, like I said, I agree on communication is very important. But um, I saw a comment from a, a Buddhist monk. Some video. She was talking. It was I think oneness. She was talking about this idea of oneness and transitioning. And I, I think I'd like to state that. Um, we can recognize that the zeitgeist movement is primarily a Western Anglo-American um, themed. I mean, I know we have a global sense, a global vision, but do we recognize that it's a primarily a, a Western themed idea? Well, Out of the, the uh, one of the reasons that Jacques left technocracy was because they were a Western centralized group. Okay. Well, yeah, I, 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 that's an interesting thing because I remember his talking about it. But this monk said, okay, look at it like this. She said, you know, now we have a lot of people in the West that are, you know, woken up to this whole 
new consciousness. But are we going to actually do that? Do, do, do you actually think you're going to come over to these emerging places like China and India, which is the vast majority of this planet, and tell them, oh, well, you know what, don't do what we did. You know, don't chase the car. I mean, I'm sorry, people, but the zeitgeist movement in many, I don't think it's going to have an impact in especially China. I don't think it will. Well, you do have some insight into some areas that we, that we don't really talk too much. I mean, actually, it's funny. We have a, one of the chapter coordinators on the call. Gilbert, do we even have a chapter in China? Not yet, but good that I was about to uh, get in there anyway. I, I, I'd like, I mean, I don't know if we have the time for it right now. I'd like to have some supporting statements uh, or at least some, uh, some build-up argument behind the statement that you did about have it, that, uh, that the movement would be based on these westernized uh, principles. Otherwise, we do have a lot of the world uh, getting interested in just saying... Yeah, but Pause real quick, just to, uh -huh. to one of my station identifications. We are coming to the end of the live show. If you are listening live, the rest of it will be available on the archive. And we also, please, you two, we have to remember that we interrupted Xavier earlier so that you know, we could get some questions answered. We need to make sure we get back to him. So whatever you're getting ready to exchange, please don't let it take I, more than five minutes. <laughs> I, just have, I just have a very short uh, statement. There are a lot more countries getting interested. It just takes more time because of the conditioning of the people, of the social situation and economic situations. Uh, Asia is a tough area, but we're going to focus on it and we're going to break through there as well. It'll take more time, more understanding of the current culture, but we have people coming from over the world. Yesterday I had an email from Mongolia and a group of people wanted to start there. Uh, it's, it's coming. It's uh, definitely they're grasping the concepts there. I think. Oh, you're right, Gilbert. And, and I've been doing a lot of work in five, six years here in Asia. I mean, I, I, I am part of the movement. I just, I'm a kind of person, I don't, I don't follow movements. I like initiatives, but I do use it. I have been, as well as others, utilizing, the, I mean, I've shown Zeitgeist Addendum and uh, the first one, not so much, but many, many things. I do work with spiral dynamics. I do consulting. So I've been doing the work here, but um, the point is, Look at yourself as a Chinese, because right now they think they are the winners here. You know, nationalism is on the rise. I've seen an, a massive rise in nationalism and patriotism in the six years that I've been here. It's scary. You know, well, um, I, you know, in fact, it just occurred to me, you know, maybe we should do a show about China, but like just a show where we talk about how to get into India or get into these countries. Uh, uh, yeah, and I have some uh, young students that would be... Uh, yeah, it would be interesting because it's, it's, it's a tough cookie here. I have, I'm saying that China will be the last to fail this paradigm. Now, um, real quickly, though, it just occurred to me also, we need to let Xavier go because he's also going to be going to go do his own show here at the top of the hour. So, Xavier, go ahead and um, say what you were going to say earlier. I'm really sorry that you got interrupted. Uh, that, no, that's not a problem. It was a good conversation going on. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention was that a lot of the products that we have, at least in the Western world, are, are now turning digital. And with digital means that I can keep what I have and share it with somebody else. I mean, we have music that uh, can be copied, movies and video games. They're all becoming digital. Even, even books and comic books and things are, are becoming digital, which means more to share. Um, so at that, that point, I mean, a lot of what people consider personal property, I mean, myself, most of what I have 
it can be digital and I wouldn't have to worry about, you know, not having it. Um, so that's, that's one of the main things. And in regards to the rest of the, the you know, the rest of the world, um, you know, with us, you know, the Western world coming to other countries saying, you can't do this. I think one of the things that the Zeitgeist Movement is trying to do is, as we're going to these other countries, is we're not saying, you can't do this. We're saying, you don't need to do this. We've already made the mistakes for you. Here's a solution, you know, so that you don't have to go through the growing pains that, that you know, that we have. We're going to let, you know, they're, they're struggling right now. We're going to let them go through what we're going through now so that they can get to the better society and the better solutions uh, you know, that we're just coming to ourselves, I think that's where we're different. Uh, we're not trying to tell them that, they, you know, that you can't have a car. We're trying to say, here's how you can get a car that everyone can use and it's better for the environment rather than, you know, relying on fossil fuels and, and things like that that are just going to lead them to the exact same point that we are. So that's where the difference is, I think. That, uh, and, uh, you know, I may be wrong because obviously I've never been outside of Canada myself. But that's where I stand. And, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I am going to step up, step up the, the line here. And uh, for any listeners out there who can't listen to uh, this continuing show, um, please feel free to stop over on ours. Again, the link is in the chat room. There's not a lot of people in the chat room. Uh, can you tell them what to search? Is it a blog talk show? It is a blog talk show. It is uh, TZM London. Uh, and it may come up as Zeitgeist London. Um, it is not the UK London, it's uh, Canada London, um, just to, to clarify. Um, yeah, and it should be there, and if you can find it, uh, we're also on the Facebook page as well. Okay, excellent. All right, and uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, hopefully we can do this again uh, when I have a little more time, but uh, cool. great talking with you guys. Well, I'll, I'll probably be doing another one tomorrow. I just haven't picked the topic yet. Probably do some more of this otherwise. But what were you going to say, Gilbert? I just said bye, Kevin. <laughs> oh, okay. Cool. All right. Um, all right. Uh, Jack, um, do you have anything further on the conversation going so far? Uh, no. Okay. I enjoyed listening to everybody's comments. Excellent. Um, now, I, I know that, Jack, you've been getting some kind of international, um, uh, obviously international attention at some point. Are there, have you had more luck with members of other countries, like any specific country that's been interested in what you're doing? I've, you know, Skype is such a great thing because I've been able to talk to people all over the world, a lot of them having listened to your show who've, who've uh, contacted me and said, yeah, this is, this is the same idea that they've had for a long time. So uh, I kind of, I don't like this referred to as Jack's idea because this was not done just by me. This was created by a group of people and the vision was far more than anything that I had been able to think of myself. So this was a real synergy of a lot of people looking at this uh, for for a couple of years to create this. So uh, there are so many people who contact me from, from all over. Not any particular place stands out more than another, but, uh, you know, the, there are people who've been thinking about how can we make this work for all of us. Mm -hmm. We're now down to the last 90 seconds of the show. Once again, to the live listeners, 
Uh, please visit v-radio.org and consider a donation. Um, it's to keep V-Radio on the air. You're going to get more programming like this on a much more regular basis now. Um, and uh, go ahead and continue with what you were saying, Jack. Um, that's it. Uh, if for those of you who are signing off, you can go to www.communityplanet.org. And there you can read more about the Community Planet Foundation and what we're doing and, and click on the 38-minute video, which, which uh, does a good job in describing what the Community Planet vision is. And if you want to see this in more depth, you can get a, a copy of the book through that website. Excellent, excellent. All right, well, um, okay. Uh, it's interesting that we, we had this conversation about Community Planet, and uh, it kind of spurred a kind of impromptu debate on the topics of, you know, the Zeitgeist movement and, you know, and how it relates to China. One of the particular reasons why I liked having Eric on the show is because of the fact that he kind of has, you know, a different view having lived in China for the last six years. And that's actually uh, an element of V-Radio that, that I was one of the things I always liked particularly about my first shows is I was able to get international panels of people from all around. And I think that, I mean, Eric, you are aware about the, the world tour that the, that the Venus Project is doing right now, right? Yes, yes, I am. It uh, looks like they had a good, uh, good response in Greece. Uh, interestingly enough, that's not surprising, actually. Well, it is the, the country of reason and logic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> A lot of good people came out of there. What was it like? Aristotle, Socrates, were they both Greek? I'm trying to remember. They were Greek. Uh, yeah. And Plato. Not to mention good food. I like gyros. And they were also India, a nation country. Yep. That's very true. Um, now... It's actually interesting that we brought that up. It's just that, you know, you, you, I know that what you're saying about the the, problem, the unique problems with China. Um, now, I guess one of the things that came about when I was thinking about that was the the issue that, I guess what I wanted to ask you, because this is kind of relevant to what we're talking about here, is that now, as far as communism in China and the notion of people working together, I mean, I don't know enough about Chinese culture, which is why I'm asking you, uh, you know, how much, I mean, you would think that we would have an easier time talking to a communist nation about this. So why okay, do you feel that? that? I, there's, um, I mean, there's no set, putting the word communism aside, um, yeah. there's really, you don't find a sense of community. I mean, China, Korea, Japan, and Japan's a little bit different, but the, I like to put Northeast Asia because there's a lot of commonalities. You know, it's a very top-down society. Um, that's why you don't see a lot of creativity here. Why you don't see a, that's, that's why I always ask, you know, where, where's the Gandhi of East, East Asia? Where's the Martin Luther King? Or where's the whether you like him or Che Guevara? Or where you know where's the radical revolutionaries of, of East Asia aside aside from Mao Zedong and uh, the father of North Korea? Um, so you know, it's a very top-down society. So. The reason I like Jack's thing, and I, I wrote something about this, is not everybody is going to understand the approach of only the, the, the zeitgeist movement and just always say, well, the monetary market system is sickle. You know, in China, face is very important here. And you can probably guess that means consumerism and materialism. 
So I use that. I don't say, oh, the monetary. Blah, blah, blah. I say, you know, this, this face thing. I know it's your culture, and, but it's, it's, it's very ter- it's terrible. Tell me, you know, I've, so, you know, you can't, we can't always have the same. Uh, and that's my point about that it was a bit, ang- you know, the movement is still a bit uh, Anglo-American um, themed, per se. Definitely, but we definitely have recognized these problems. Actually, I do have people uh, currently ready for me to start investigation into uh, the culture that is dominant in China and related countries to see how we can actually appeal there and what kind of of, of holes we have to, to get to these people because we realize that the conditioning is completely different by by origin, if you will. I'm an Asian as well. I recognize a lot of this in my family, and I, I can see how, how different it is. So, uh, sure, you are right when you say that at this point in time, yes, there's a lot more participation by Anglo-American or European and American countries, and that the way that we're operating the movement right now is based on that. At the same time, at the coordination level, we're very aware that in Africa, in Asia, uh, places where the culture is completely different, we'll have to use different approaches, and we're ready to engage that when it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Well, that's yeah. good. well, you know, um, I guess that's something maybe, you know, Eric, uh, you should work with them on, and, you know, they'll help them do that. I mean, I, I don't know. The, the yeah, question, sure. The funny question. I, I do have some young kids that are, re- you know, they do get it. And, you know, they're doing amazing things. I have this young boy, he walked 100 miles, 100 kilometers to another city, you know, against his parents, uh, just, just to prove a point. Because right now, car, you know, you've got to have a car right now. And it's, you know, cool, man. It's like 1950s America. It's, if you need a girlfriend, you've got to have a car. It's, it's really, this is the stage they're at right now. It's total uber consumerism and materialism. And it's, I mean, the Gucci and the Prada and the Ferraris are just, you know, the most important things to have. You know, I'm a boss. I'm a big boss. <laughs> BMWs are what bosses drive. You know, when you talk like that, it just reminds me of something that, because uh, when, when I went to Ireland for my uh, for my honeymoon, we stayed at a lot of bed and breakfasts, and one of the bed and breakfasts we stayed at was, was owned by a, a teacher. She was an Irish history teacher, and one of the things that she noticed was that it seemed as though Ireland was not content with just letting us make all the stupid mistakes, that they felt the need to repeat them <laughs> over and higher yeah. to make sure I, that I don't we do that. I don't say that that's not what the movement's been doing, but they feel entitled here. They're not, I tell you, it's going to, they're not going to listen. I've tried it. I've seen it. They're like, oh, yeah. I mean, just put yourself in their shoes. How convenient is it for us Western people to come and say, you know, oh, don't do this. You know, it's not good. Because they look like they look at it like they're the winners, and oh well, you know it's easy for you to say that now because you're, you know, <laughs> USA is all, you know, and there's this a sort of, with the nationalism, there's this a sort of enjoyment that they see what's happening in in the West and US. They're they're, they're pushing this. Right. Eric, I have well, a question, Eric. Go ahead, Jim. Uh-huh. Uh, and that is that um, you know we hear about this uh, this lifestyle that's that you're describing that's rising in China. And China is a country of over a billion people. Exactly. I'm wondering, I'm wondering what percentage of the people are actually able to pursue 
this kind of a lifestyle versus how many people are still being completely left out of of that pursuit? I mean, is this like a very uh, relatively compared to the billion plus population? Is this a virtually zero, Jack? Virtually zero. Okay. Um. Well, that's one point I, I wanted to make because you mentioned this mistake uh, situation. Like you're telling them as a Western community or Western society that they've made mistakes, but that's not the way we operate at all. Most of the activism is done by the local chapter. So if we ever do something in China, it would be done by Chinese people or China or uh, people from other origins that live in China that actually can explain at a local level why it would be beneficial to have such a system in place. So I don't think such a scenario is a uh, good justification for how things would develop there. Well, what uh, I, yeah, I just, you just have to realize that some of the propaganda, you know, I, I, believe me, I left America for many reasons uh, six years ago, and I'm. I'm not saying America is, you know, the land of the free or by any means, though I, I think you all understand that. But in, 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 in some ways, yes, people do have more freedoms here, in fact, than other countries. You know, it's, 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 for those of you that have traveled, you know this concept of freedom and what freedom is is very abstract. But you, in many ways, the, you know, the control from the government to the school system uh, through the family dynamic is much more rigid than you're going to find in most Western or even, even West Asian, I hate to say it. I mean, I have, I have a lot of difficulty really communicating with East Asian people, and it's about the only way. It's just almost impossible. It's getting better with some younger people, but, I mean, to be honest, it's really, it's, as far as a ethnic group or whatever you want to call it, because I'm not going to say a race because I don't subscribe to that, but the behavior system, the culture, it's very difficult. And I, you know, this is a shared opinion among many people, including you know West Asians that I, you know, have called my friends. Um, it's a very different animal, in, from my experience and in my opinion. Okay, Jack, you were you were trying to say something. Go ahead. Well, here's what I'm wondering, and I'm absolutely no expert on China, but I'm I'm wondering if because I suspect that most of the Chinese are being left out of this uh, consumptive pattern that's being uh, yes. pursued by a relatively small number of very wealthy Chinese, while the vast majority of people are still in absolute poverty and right. in the outlying areas and living in villages. And I just wonder if a model such as Community Planet where people could uh, do something where they could have so much more than they now have, I wonder no. if that would be appealing to them. No. For example, there have been attempts of people, you know, the real estate is a really big source of uh, contention here because it's virtually impossible to be even a highly paid, uh, working professional, educated so-called, to, to buy a house without masses, I mean, the, the prices are, so people have tried to circumvent the system and pull their financial resources to, 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 you can't buy land here, so it's the lease. So they've tried to pool their resources 
to lease the land and develop, you know, hire the builder and the government. Oh, no, 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 no. Absolutely no way. Shut down. Yeah, that's actually what I was, one of the things I was going to ask you, that, that the first thing that popped into my head, and I, I didn't want to sound silly, but it just was like, you know, uh, I'm surprised. I mean, like the stuff that you hear, you know, I'd be worried for the, the safety maybe of some of the students involved if they got involved with, you know, activism, if they weren't very careful about how they went about it. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, that's what's, I mean, I'm surprised, like, you know, you being a former American, I mean, I mean, are they watching you? Are they listening to this well, call? You know? I have a, I had a funny, when I first came to China, I had a, I got a call from the Secret Service because some of the activities I was involved in before leaving made, made basically with 9-11 true. I was involved with the International Criminal Courts, you know, promoting that, you know, many activities, and I was sort of not a public persona that was, uh, you know, very well liked in the Bush administration. So, uh, well, I consider that a compliment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not that stuff anyway. I mean, that's what, those are my political days. But so I, I have uh, connections with the secret, and yeah, I mean, both ways. And now I've kind of turned on China. They, you know, they they called it that. And but you're absolutely right. I mean, there is. We have a, a very small group of young kids, and I feel that it's. Um, important that we get them out of China right now because I, I think China is going to be, a, like I said, a, a, the last to collapse in the system. That's just my prediction. Um, and, it, and the collapse here will be, um, will be a, really a terrible thing because I, I see how the, you know, I understand everything's good here, especially in the cities like Shanghai. It's good, you know, they're the winners. They all have BMWs and stuff. But the way they treat each other when it's good is, I don't want to see when it, when it becomes bad. Well, that's actually something else that popped into my head was you guys, like, because you live in China, you don't have a lot of the, I mean, I don't really want to call them protections. The neoconservatives, the people who really run this country, are, are basically forced to kind of go through the motions of pretending to give a damn about individual rights. So, you know, and whereas in your country, when it, when things get out of line, they, there's nothing wrong with them showing up and shooting people. That's like I talked to a couple of Chinese uh, people who I worked with for a while at a restaurant, and I asked them, like, you know, I actually the question I asked them was, what do you think about the Tongs, meaning the Chinese mafia? And he's like, well, where do you find them? They're not in China anymore. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, in China, you know, if the police show up and they find drugs, they'll take your, everybody in your house outside and they'll shoot them in the head. You know, no, tri no trial, no nothing. You're just done. You know, and that's why he's like, they all come to America because it's much easier to be a, you know, to be a, um, a mobster in a capitalist system than it is, you know, in a, in a, you know, a fascist Chinese system. That's why I'd be like, I'd be really worried about what the Chinese government will do to lash out. I mean, it's obvious from what you said at the top down scenario that you've got the, I don't know what the Chinese word for the nomenclature would be, the, you know, the, the equivalent of that in Soviet Russia. Um, mm. so I, yeah, I, I'd be really worried about what would happen when that country tries to keep itself together, because I mean, we saw just what happens when you protest a little bit. If you actually start doing something they're scared of, I'd be, I mean, am I, am I wrong about this? How much of what I'm saying is propaganda? You know, is China really... No, I mean, it's, um, oh, it's difficult. I mean, you, you know, I, I have to use a VPN, and for those, it's basically I have to get around the firewall of China because things like Facebook, YouTube is all blocked. Um, 
So that's one big sense, you know, um, mechanism of control they, they imply. Um, but you do, you know, there is blogging for, oh, this is getting very Chinese, and, but like, for example, when you try to write uh, governments in Chinese um, with the Chinese characters, it, it blocks, it shuts down the search um, results. So what the people have done is they take different characters with the same kind of because if you understand it's it's a uh, each character has basic you know can have ten different sounds just combine different words that sound like it so then you get around it and they they have a lot of political debate and stuff and there's some people some bloggers that are getting uh, quite vocal about the situation you know they're they're walking a fine line you know they want to be open and have things like the Olympics and this this World Expo that's going on. Um, it, it, it's difficult to say. I mean, it, it's very complex, like anywhere else. Um, right. They're walking a fine line. You know, it, it's hypocritical. Obama came over here and spoke about Internet speech and this and that and freedom of speech. And then at the same time, which most Westerners don't know, you see the laws that they're trying to push through to shut down the Internet in case of a you right. know, terrorist attack or whatever. Were you going to comment on that, Jack? No, I was just, I'm just agreeing there. They, they, the powers that be that like to stay in power, they would absolutely love to know how to shut down the Internet if they could monitor, you know, if they could put a stop to some of this freedom of information that's going on, they would love to know how to do it. And, you know, even, even Western Australia said point blank that they want to adopt a Chinese-style Internet. Out of Australia. Wow. Western democracy. That's so crazy. That's, <laughs> um, now, I guess, um, well, Gilbert, you know, being from the Netherlands, what, what, is, what is it like over where you're at? Is your government in your face about any of this? Do you think that they're ever going to look down on this? Or is the government in the Netherlands, you know, more open-minded? Well, uh, being the only country, I guess, in the world where weed is legal, I guess we're kind of flexible, but uh, you have to also consider that uh, we're definitely part of, of the same system. Uh, uh, actually, a lot of Europeans look down on American society, whereas in the past, American society was hot, was a cool thing. Now, uh, the general attitude in Europe uh, is that, well, Americans are stupid, but that's, that's the general attitude. Um, oh yes, that's true. But, <laughs> I see that living here. But uh, but yeah, to come back on topic, well, no, uh, the government, if if at mass such legislation is pushed through, the Dutch government might participate, but they would never attempt something like that on their own. Uh, the Dutch people uh, in this culture, the way they're conditioned, they're definitely going to. Uh, uh, go to Parliament and kick the people uh, out of the out of their governing positions. There's no fear here at this point in time. Uh, the Europeans are quite self-aware of of their rights and positions just because of the sheer history. And uh, the, it, it, it would take a country such as America to lead an example, and then a whole lot of other European countries before they would ever be able to push such a legislation here. But it is possible. Well, are you guys part of the European Union? Yeah, we are a core part, actually. Because I remember, like, you know, the Lisbon Treaty, they were trying to sneak all kinds of uh, 
bad stuff in, and it took like an Irish referendum to slow them down. I mean, I don't know if you guys, you know, had any like the, supposedly though the Lisbon Treaty had all kinds of provisions for how like they could, uh, what was it? Um, they could draft people in other countries, like you know, to go to war. You know, I mean, maybe you know more about it than I do, but yeah, those things they they, they just push you through. Uh, what happened was there were two countries or. Uh, a couple of countries actually that objected to to the European Constitution. That's actually what the Lisbon Treaty is. It's the European Constitution, and uh, amongst others, uh, the Netherlands objected to this. A lot of other countries were actually uh, forced to agree, so uh, they agreed, and we were one of the last to agree. So, like I said, it it it, it could happen, but the Netherlands will be one of the last countries to be fooled into this. Unfortunately, with the Lisbon Treaty, treaty we just got forced. Yeah, it's, I'm surprised. But, yeah, I mean, as far as, like, you know, as this relates, it's interesting that we're bringing this up because, you know, we talk about community planet, meaning the planet. Um, <laughs> the Zeitgeist Movement is a global movement. Um, you, know, and we, you know, I don't. I, it is an interesting pocket to think about. It's like we keep thinking to ourselves how tough it'll be for, for people to adjust from a capitalist background. You know, what's it going to be like for people from a, you know, I guess – I guess from what you're saying, Eric, is that the, the, the communist issue is not really uh, not really an issue. I mean, aren't there any? Isn't there anybody, you know, preaching the the, the supposed traditional Marxist theories over there, or, or what's? I mean, we're oh, no. they, they call it Chinese style communism. So that's Mao and Pal, Pol Pot or whatever their names were. It's just different, you know. China's always different. That's how they, you know. Um, it's just different. <laughs> it's really right. part of the psyche here. They're just different. Well, is it, I mean, is, is basically, I guess what I'm thinking is, is that the communist theory over there just kind of a show, you know, just an excuse like it is, like, you know, like capitalism is over here, supposedly is our formula for freedom, but it's all BS? There's, there's no sense of, as I said, I mean, I can't reiterate enough, that there's, there's absolutely zero sense of, of community here in China. Very few and very few and far in between. I mean, I'm not saying West, you know, uh, the North America is a bastion of, of great people sharing and stuff, but at least there's an, a, a, a sizable element. You know, there's communities you can go to that you can just see more community compared to other places. Um, but there's absolutely, there's absolutely zero here. That's really sad. I mean, it just it's like it just sounds like the the whole concept of what communism was supposed to be in theory, which you know was never really applied. You know. Um, it just it never really took root because supposedly that's what yeah. communism is supposed to be is you know sharing and working together. It it did exist in some in some form um, right after the revolution and during what they called the cultural revolution. So essentially there there was a point where there was no money. Um, people were pretty much generally the same, which can be a bit not saying say that that's a great thing, but. You know, they were um, sharing resources like uh, cooking, community dinners. Uh, this was a time when really nobody had a, you know, it was right after the revolution where they were just trying to wipe the slate clean, thus called the Cultural Revolution. Right. And pretty much there was no economic activity, no development. Um, and so people were sharing and people were pretty much the same. And it, from what my wife says and what I've heard from people, you know, it was kind of a happy time, actually, in, in many ways. You know, there wasn't competition. Of course, I'm sure there was oppression if you didn't agree with, uh, you know, there was many bad things. But in general, people were um, a bit happier because it was just 
a more common uniform. I don't want to say you know this this uniformity is a great thing for society to do, but you know people were kind of on the same level, and it was good in in many ways. Well, some uniformity can be fine, particularly if it's uniformity that that is positive. You know, if we've all agreed not to be jerks to each other, then that's certainly better than being uniform in, you know, uniformity in like a uh, a militant sense. I mean, it's, we, we deal with that all the time, particularly when I'm talking to libertarians. They're so terrified of words like uniformity. You know, you can't say the word collective in front of them. You can't even say the word cooperate in front of them most of the time. And it's it's He's a tip word. <laughs> and it's just it's it is so scary to them. Oh God, he wants my individuality. You know, just like no, I don't want your individuality. But you know, I want you to think about what a single ant could accomplish, and then compare it to what an ant colony can accomplish. You know, mm-hmm. that's I mean, ant colonies can take down creatures that are you know a billion times bigger than the average ant. A single ant would bite you once, and that would be it. And then you you swat it and it'd be over. And that's and honestly, I think it it helps people at least in our government, a governmental situation. Maybe even in yours. You like you said, there's no sense of community. That actually works in the favor of the elite that are controlling everything because then you can you don't think about the fact of, hey, wait a minute, we're the Chinese citizenry. There's about a billion of us. There's only you know maybe a hundred thousand of those jerks who are you know driving tanks over us in Kinnaman Square. <laughs> Let's do something about this. I, I, I read some. I saw somebody put it perfectly. If you really want to understand what happened through the so-called communist China, I think we're all familiar with the event of Tiananmen Square, which was what exactly 20 years ago last year. Mm-hmm. You know, and so they had this point where everybody was the same, but it started getting redundant for the student population, and they said, "Wait a minute, you know what? This is not communism." You know, they started waking up, like, "Okay, well, we have some elite people here, and we can't say anything against them." So. They started wanting some quote-unquote freedom. So no, the state said no, no, no way. So Tiananmen Square happened, and basically the the, the premier at the time said you have you have two things. You, you have two doors. You can have political freedom, and you can open this door, and you're going to meet the state. You have economic. You have this other door B, which is economic freedom, and you are free to. Do what you want, make factories, consume, get rich. You know, basically Reaganomics trickle down. Uh, um, so they, they ate it up. They took the economic uh, free market, whatever we want to call it. They took, it the, they took the economic freedom because they're not going to be allowed the political and social freedom. Wow. So they ate it up. They're eating it up today. You know what, I think that uh, it's, it's, it's really too bad, but, you know, maybe, you know, them going through that phase, you know, hopefully they'll finally get to that point that the thing is, is that what they're laughing at us about over here in the United States is what they're getting ready to step into if they continue to go in the direction they're going. I mean, yeah. that's, that's, it's, it's just, it's kind of funny is that, I mean, it, it seems that everybody really is going to have to beat this to death before they recognize that it's just not yeah, a good idea. That's the whole thing about, I don't know, you know, people argue stage one, stage two to society. And I, I, I understand that that's been the model, but damn, I wish it would just, I wish just our species would make an evolutionary leap and say, why do we need to go through these, these you know, stages of healing, these stages of development? And, and, you know, you wish we could go through an evolution, like perhaps maybe the next evolution, 
exactly. I didn't. That was not intended, by the way. <laughs> what do you think, Jack? The next evolution is that a good idea? I've heard you. You might have an opinion on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as I've said, the the original working title of the book was the next revolution, but a friend of mine pointed out that that was a little too in your face. So the R is silent and it's just about showing that there can be a way that people can, can live with more abundance and, and more happiness and to just to demonstrate how that could happen and seeing if people will move towards that out of their own self-interest. Well, um, this has been an awesome conversation, and uh, I think we'll definitely at some point, I mean, because we did deviate a little bit into China, I'm glad that, however, it wasn't a total deviation, because you pointed out that initially, when, you know, during the, the honeymoon phase, so to speak, in China, we had a, you know, essentially, like you said, a happy situation of communal living and people making community dinners and stuff, and that all sounds like exactly what, you know, uh, the next evolution people are talking about, a community planet. You know, and I also wanted to, uh, to, to put up a disclaimer. I also know that there are a lot of people involved in what Jack was doing. And the reason I kept calling it Jack's idea was just for the sake of conversation. Um, I don't know most of the other people involved. And, Jack, if any of the other people involved with Community Planet ever want to come on the show, by all means, just let me know. Um, but uh, overall, it was just kind of like, you know, we were discussing, you know, the, the, the differences and the similarities between this, and you happen to be the only person on the call who was part of Community Planet, so I just kept going back to Jack. Um, but, yeah. Well, the, the reason why I just pointed that out was just in case the listener was thinking that, oh, this one person just thought of this idea and, and wrote a book about this and, and did this because... When synergy takes more than one person to to create it, and this was a quite a long process done by a group of people, and so I, every time somebody says my idea, I have to point out like, no, it really is so much more than my idea. I think you pointed that that out very well, though. Uh, you did mention it a couple of times that that there is a community here that supports it, and I recognize that as well. So uh, all I wanted to say is that definitely, I mean, I have my points of criticism or questions, and uh, certain points we disagree on. Otherwise, I do want to say that definitely, whatever the way is, I mean, with the Zeitgeist movement, we're going our own way, we're taking it our own, at our own pace, and we're deciding uh, through the circumstances what we'll do. I do think that you have, well, uh, that might be a little, uh, I don't know, I, weird way of wording it, but you have the heart in the right place, and you guys are trying to do a good thing. So definitely with, with whatever I said was honest inquiry, and uh, I, uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you. Well, as we progress, we're going to be reading more and more of the book, and I think a lot of your questions are going to be answered, Gilbert. Um, I can tell you from reading this book, it's it's very compatible in a lot of ways with what we're doing. A lot of it reminds me of, the experience I went through when I read The Best of Money Can't Buy by Jock Fresco. So um, in the end, um, I, I think that you know, one of the things that we've been dealing with, you know, when we talk about people accusing us of being exclusionary and stuff, I've been trying to find, you know, make outreaches to some of these groups that are similar. And in addition to that, I've been trying to find better ways to um, 
approach people from different backgrounds. I mean, like talking to Jack, Jack Reed about this is easy in comparison to what I have to go through to talk to, you know, former libertarian presidential candidates about this topic. <laughs> Trust me, you know, that <laughs> this is small potatoes, you know, and in the end, um, the fact that these, these organizations all exist only stands to benefit us overall. I was shocked at how many other, you know, great organizations. Like, I mean, I'm sure you remember, uh, you know, Marcin uh, Jagabowski from uh, the Open Source Ecology Movement, Gilbert, and that first video that he played where he talks about how I want to, you know, I want to design technology that will eliminate scarcity and war and poverty. And I was like, wow, you know, who is this guy? And he had never even heard of Jock Frasco yet. He he had never heard of a resource-based economy, and when I sat down and talked to him about it, he's like, you know, that's what I've been believing my whole life, and I never had a word for it. And now he uses the term resource-based economy in his own presentations about what open source ecology is about. Um, I definitely uh, remember that. Thanks, you know, that he was a great person to interact with as well. And but that's, you know, it's really amazing things. Yeah, I I love this 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 emerge what we're seeing. It's it's really amazing. And, it, you know, and in the end, it helps us that the environment is currently in vogue, you know, with, with the celebrities. And I know that they'll just abandon it as soon as it's not in vogue. But when, during the time that it's, that it's fashionable, it gets people thinking. Like, you know, now I don't necessarily value my experience of watching the movie in The Inconvenient Truth very much. But if I hadn't watched that film, I probably wouldn't have thought about certain aspects of the environment that I do now. You know, there are other films and stuff that I've been exposed to that I don't necessarily agree with anymore. I went through the Ron Paul movement and, you know, went through my little capitalist phase and I got out of it, but I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for that. You know, that's, that's how these associations really work. And then also when you think about it, I mean, Marchin talks about the Zeitgeist movement now with his group of people, you know, and, you know, Jack talks to, you know, with his people about the Zeitgeist movement. It's kind of a cross-promotion you know, that we can only all stand to gain from, you know, when, when we do this. And that, you know, it, even, you know, and even the, like, you know, when it comes to dealing with the libertarians, you know, and the, the you know, some of the, the other Tea Party, not the Boston Tea Party, you know, um, like, we still get invitations to end the Fed rallies. I see no reason at all why the Zeitgeist Movement wouldn't attend end the Fed rallies. You know, um, we get, you know, invitations to other well, things like civil that, rights and stuff like that. You know, just something to think about. That's a very difficult subject. Right now, we have a policy that we don't actively participate in such rallies because we're not politically aligned. Of course, the Fed is not necessarily a U.S. Uh, political subject. That if you if you relate it to central banks in general, uh, so. But, but we try to keep out of the rally because we want to make people aware of what we actually advocate right now instead of demonstrating the faults that we recognize in the system. I, I know you know this. I'm just pointing it out for the listeners. Right. Why I respond to this right now. I was just I mean, It's a delicate line, I agree. Like, to, to be a movement, to be an initiative, it, it is a delicate line to keep your to on one hand support any initiative or movement or individual that's trying to do something, but on the other hand, keep your direction and keep your identity, I guess, and your, your I hate to say your brand, there's lack of a better word. It, it's a fine line. I mean, I agree. It's, um, well, it's, I understand all, 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 of, all critics and all, all, all opinions. It's, uh, 
uncharted territory here. It's well, yeah. That, well, that's why I like it. I mean, that's, and I use that as an example because, you know, in the Ron Paul movement, we became entirely too dogmatic and we didn't really think about, it's like the, the message that we were supposedly pushing for got lost in the shuffle, you know, and the, the theocratic element, well, basically the Ron Paul movement always had all these little pods, is what I call them, of various splinter groups that had attached themselves to it. And one of them was the extreme right-wing Christian conservatives, and another one was the anarchists, and then another one was the strict libertarians, and they all thought they were the only real Ron Paul movement. And then Ron Paul made a recommendation at one point that you know for Chuck Baldwin for president, and he was one of those extreme right-wing Christian theocrat types. And I noticed that the people around me were so uh, locked into whatever Ron Paul said that they didn't look up what Chuck Baldwin was really about. And when I did, I, I was, that's actually one of the major things that made me think, whoa, hold on a second, going to put the brakes on here. You know, this guy's Constitution Party calls themselves the Constitution Party, but they also believe that the Bible and the Constitution are the same thing and that being gay should be illegal and that gay people should never be allowed to raise kids and, you know, that, you know, they should be, that the First Amendment gives them the right to ban profanity and the First Amendment gives them the right to ban pornography. And I'm like, where did you get all this crap? And it is, the thing that, you know, that I realized was that this is something I think, I, I keep crediting Senator Mike Gravel for it because he's the one who opened my mind you know, was to say that, you know, he was like, you know, you can't let yourself be a psychophant of any of these groups and you have to keep your mind open because, you know, if, if you if you let them take total control, then, you know, then an agenda can get slid past you that's not necessarily what you agree with. And fortunately enough for me in the Zeitgeist Movement, I don't have to worry about that because I have agreed with everything that Jock has said, you know, with like really minor exceptions that are, are so minor that it's not even relevant, you know, but... Overall, though, I was always able to talk to Jacques and to Peter about the differences that I had, and there was never a problem. If you talked about any differences you had with the Ron Paul movement, they'd act like you were committing blasphemy. And I'm not saying that you know, to be silly at all. And that's exactly what they told me. They were like, oh, well, Chuck Baldwin endorses Ron Paul. Are you going to go against Ron Paul? You know, does that mean you don't like Ron Paul? You know, do you think Ron Paul is stupid? Do you think Ron Paul is this? And I'm like, well, um, I got into this because I believed in freedom for everybody, um, not just freedom for straight people. <laughs> you know, that, that was one example of, you know, how you got to be able to find the commonalities that these groups have. You know, there are some things that we work on together, but like we said, a, a consciousness, the uncharted territory that's raising is that when we get to a point where even people of somewhat different ideologies would still make the world better for everybody if they're the ones who get elected, then, we, then we're doing good. Like, there's a friend of mine named Christine Smith. She's basically a mainstream libertarian. She's running for state house in Colorado somewhere. And I know that she cares about the people that are in her constituency. I know that even though she's a mainstream libertarian and for the most part a free market libertarian, you know, I talked to her about what we proposed, and she wasn't opposed to it. It just wasn't her preferred method. You know, and I know, however, that we would be better off with Christine Smith, for example, representing those constituents than the neoconservative that is, she's running against. That's an example of how, even as movements overall, 
we'd be better off, for example, with Ron Paul as president than Barack Obama. I don't have a you know argument about that, but I still prefer Dennis Kucinich. But when there's an overall consensus that even the people who don't agree with us at least agree with us on the fact that people need to come first more than enough, you know, we'll be doing better overall. I heard somebody get up. Did you need to talk, Eric? Or? No, I was just saying that that's the point I was making, with, which I'd like to see across all the move. Like, like I, I, what you're talking about, and I understand that you're still on like a political, and you focus on, and you talk on the topics. And while I don't agree with it, or I don't choose to do that, I totally support you, because in the end, all I'm about is looking for any individual, any group, any initiative, any project that is is working in this direction. You know, I mean, open, look, at, look at the psychology of uh, open source software. It's the exact same thing as Jacques says, as Jeff says. Um, so we have to support all these, okay, support, maybe that's a, that's a terrible word, but acknowledge and appreciate you know, all the efforts, all the areas. That's, that's really what I would like to see more. Um, so, you know, Zeitgeist on communication, global communication, um, new communities that are teaching people, maybe stepping stones, training grounds for the bigger cities, um, all the things. To me, I value every, I value everything, and we don't need to agree on it. And I, in my opinion, I'd rather stop debating and nitpicking and, and just and help each other in some way move forward to, on all levels of this transition. I thought it's funny you mentioned open source, though. You have quite a lot of problems with people taking this ideology too far. I, I don't want to uh, go into much of uh, a tangent on this, but I, I agree with you on a basic level. We do have to appreciate that. But I get pretty pissed off when people take the open source thing too far ahead. And there are people that within the movement still to this day that try to contend that we're doing bad for using... Uh, uh, commercial products instead of uh, open source software uh, just because it suits us better and I uh, basically have uh, very little patience for this. You know, uh, uh, Gilbert, let me, uh, let, me, let me add something to that because I'm actually going to have a show where I'm bringing on guests who are involved in developing open source software. I went to a, uh, I went to a um, it's called PenguinCon and it's, it's basically it's a convention for um, the various open source operating systems. And all the people I met there, when I told them about our situation with the open source crowd, supposedly the open source crowd, they all kind of laughed. And they're like, no, we don't advocate just letting people troll and be mean to each other. That's ridiculous. You can't get anything done if you act like that. You know, and it just, it, it really opened my eyes to it. I, I know what you were thinking because I I, the, the same thoughts ran through my head. But recently I've had enough good experiences with open source people that I recognized that what we were dealing with was a group of people who were just looking for an excuse not to ban trolls. <laughs> right, no, no, no. That's certainly the case. I was just simply saying uh, the, the, uh, definitely the behavioral aspects, I'm pretty well aware that a lot of the people within the open source community are very rational people and wouldn't allow this either way. These are just the very uh, specific individuals with a very strange idea about interaction. But uh, I was just saying about in general, the open source is a great thing, but when it gets pushed too far, I mean, what we're about is using the best technology to everybody's, uh, you know, uh, ability. Sorry, the best technology so that everybody can use it. And then I, uh, the the patience 
that is running very low. You know, I think that if you want to make open source a big thing, which is a, definitely another show I know in you, you have to also live up to what you're what you're saying. I've seen a lot of open source products, and uh, sometimes they're blatantly ugly. Um, yes, the functionality is there, but we have to take all points into consideration. I, I support open source. It's a, it's a great thing. But at this point, and with all the experiences we've had in the movement, if somebody pushes it too far, I am very willing to punch them in the face. <laughs> well, let's punch them in the face intellectually first. Can we try doing that? <laughs> that, that that's what I specialize in. That's what I meant, uh, of course. But you know, uh, it's um, basically in, in a way, but um, let's not uh, think about that. You know, Jack, I wanted to ask you about the, you know, the funny thing is, is that when there are conflicts and they start to get hated, how do you how does your consensus model handle that? Well there if it's in a group of people or if it's uh one on one? Um let's start with one on one. Well again this goes back to the the screening because uh, violence would in any form would absolutely not be something that you know we would we would encourage and that that includes verbal as well as physical but you know it's a matter of of people realizing that they need to to just take a, a time out first of all do some deep breathing mm -hmm. uh, and have a commitment to, again, looking that consciousness of the highest good and looking for, okay, well, we've got a conflict. If we can't resolve that between the two of us, then we seek out some support from, from a group or from a third party that can help us take a look at, at what's going on in order to resolve that. Okay. No, and I, I think what you meant by the screening is that it's kind of like that's the first thing that popped into my head was like, you know, it, perhaps there wouldn't even be anybody who even acted like that in the community in the first place. Is that kind of what you were getting at? Exactly. And if they did, knowing that it could possibly happen, there would be that commitment to, okay, let's look for some – if we can't do solve this between the two of us, let's look for a third party – that can help us with this. Right. That's, you know, and I see where you're coming from, and I think that's another one of the, just when we, when we talk about stuff like this and these problems that we have, it's another one of the reasons why I, I say that our, our movement, the Zeitgeist movement, is not quite ready to run off, you know, building communities because we don't, you know, we don't really screen anybody. That's, you know, that's the other thing that they, they say is they, they want to do everything democratically. They're like, we need to elect our moderators. We need to you know, to do everything via direct democracy within, you know, the zeitgeist movement. Otherwise, it's a hierarchy. And I'm like, you know, I'm actually a direct democracy advocate, but I also know that there are an awful lot of people who claim to be in the zeitgeist movement on our forums. There's really no way to track and be sure that they even understand what we're doing, you know, or if even worse, we have plenty of people on our forums that are just people who are there so that they can quote stuff that we're saying out of context and make insulting YouTube videos or blog posts. And I'm just like, you know, the first time we hold an election in the zeitgeist movement, 
or even an election of ideas where we vote on, you know, moderator policies or whatever, you know, it would be a total nightmare because you'd have no idea who's voting. You know, well, that's... We, we we have that system in a larger organization either. I mean, even with the chapters, they, they very well understand uh, chapters uh, just listeners that don't understand what I'm talking about, are the local departments of the Zeitgeist movement around the globe. Um, what we have right now, sure, I mean, community input is very important, but the way we translate that is to the people that are actually active, working on a day-by-day -day basis, we ask them for their opinions. However, it, like VDV pointed out, it would be a total nightmare to ask everybody that is involved, or even every subscriber, which is obviously the extreme case, but even everybody that is interested or active within the movement for their opinion, it's just not sensible at this point in time. We go by people that participate, and those are the people we ask for their opinions, and that necessarily doesn't have to be the ultimate conclusion. We go by logic. What is logical to do right now? And we base the decisions on that. I, yes, it's a gray, gray area as well, but uh, that seems the way we go for now. If you have to be democratic in every sense, they're just going to be delayed in every decision that you have to have to get made. As long as we're doing the right thing, doing things that are sensible, then we're progressing, in my opinion. You know, that's, um, you know, another major aspect of consensus that I think that is lacking from just direct democracy is that, you know, what we were talking about earlier, you know, uh, consensus is not achieved until everybody, or at least, I mean, is it everybody, Jack, or is it the most people are, con are content, or, or at least most people are at least willing to give the idea a try, even if they don't necessarily agree with it, or uh, what is consensus? Is it, I mean, is it, does it have to be unanimous? Well, first of all, in order for it to really work, you have to have people who are screened for and hold that consciousness of the, of the highest good because otherwise you get some people with some immaturity of consciousness in their personal issues or who are not committed to it, and the whole process can break down. And uh, so the lesson would be don't try to work consensus unless you have the people who are trained and screened to do it because otherwise it can be very difficult. But if you have people who are trained and screened to do it, then it becomes relatively easy using the, you know, with a good facilitator to work through any of the issues to get to a decision that everyone can support. I think that's, you know, that's something we talked about earlier, you know, when we were on the last show, when I talked about how in my own leadership style I go way out of my way to make sure everybody gets a chance to speak. And in a lot of groups that just isn't done. And, you know, and in fact, you, you're going to have some dominant personalities who are generally interested in just seeing their own agenda pushed forward or maybe they like listening to themselves talk or, you know, and maybe they are the kind of people who wait to talk rather than listening. And you you got to get, get around those people. Do you have a comment on that before Eric goes? No, no, that's a, that's absolutely – I absolutely agree with what you said. What were you going to say, Eric? 
Yeah, that, that's exactly, you know, I, I, it brings me back to the thing about the, the cohesion and the, the cooperation between the different movements. And um, I think it's, maybe Gilbert doesn't agree, and that's fine, but I, I still think um, the movement in general, this is something that it's missing. And I think this is something Jack brings to it because he has a more lighthearted, a little more localized approach with, with dealing of the same issue in the transition. And, and one of the reasons... Um, I'm doing things and trying to get things going with the group of people I'm working with is I, I, I still see that starting some kind of community, and by the way, I'm, doing, I'm looking at Argentina and it's shaping up, but I'd like to see, and I think it would be so valuable for the movement, if, let's say we can get 12 people within the movement that are, let's say, uh, a project team and start, and start practicing this consensus because I still think this is a, the, one of the an element that's missing in the movement and the transition that, that, like I said, Jack brings to it. So I still think it's highly valuable that, you know, people who supposedly really get it is start practicing these things. So just imagine a, um, a team that's um, responsible for, you know, a fairly large project and it's 12, 15, 20 people. Um, I, I think it's really a, a step to take to get these people actually work rather than living in New York and, you know, paying 2000 each a month rent or... Um, so, one, we're starting to work on consensus, and two, we're actually saving some resources and giving the people who are in the movement and committing a lot of time a, a much better environment than, say, New York or Los Angeles. And like you said, uh, Neil, they, um, you're having... It's getting difficult for you in, in, in Michigan. So yeah. this is one of the motivations, I think, to start these things. Sorry, I, I didn't know you were going to continue, so I, I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, yeah, uh, what I was going to say is that I, I don't view it per se as a bad thing, but it's just not what we're doing uh, right now with the movement. What you're saying is uh, giving those people the opportunity to live in a different environment and then contribute to the movement is exactly not what we want to be doing. We want to have these people in place Unfortunately, in, 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 a, in a social situation, which I'd rather not see them, but they're doing their work there right now because it's needed. They're interfacing with these people uh, that do uh, think this way of indoctrination is, is their whole life. So um, what is important right now, and, and since you meant consensus, uh, oh, sorry, mentioned consensus, uh, this is something that, that, that will be very absent in the movement for a long while, just because we need the practicality to move on when we need to, when individual opinions get into, uh, in, in the way of decision making, it will make things very complicated. We aren't uh, um, making the decisions just from one person's opinion. People that are interested and contribute they are asked of their opinion. This is not limited just to them, but it's at meetings with organizers, which is publicly available to everybody, where people can voice their opinion. If there's no objection, we'll proceed. That's the way we go. If there are objections, they are uh, properly uh, recognized and they are dealt with. So sure, there is a form of consensus. It's just not having everybody vote over a particular issue. I think that's a very bad thing. I think that's asking people more than they might even be wanting to think about, and they, with the current condition, they even might want to think of things that aren't really there and, and make up things to complicate the situation. 
due to indoctrination and influences from the outside. Well, let me uh, let me comment on that, and then I, I think I can I can tell Jack probably needs to say something too. Um, I think what Jack is trying to tell you, Gilbert, is that um, he also agrees that it is not something that you could just throw a switch and start doing. Um, like I'm pretty confident that you and me and maybe Chibi, you know, could could achieve consensus. You know, that we're the kind of personalities that could easily do that. You know, there are some other people in the movement that I know I absolutely could not do consensus with. And, and it's not because the consensus idea is wrong. It's that when we finally achieve the level of awareness that we're talking about, most people will be thinking like Jack already. If that's, that's where I was going with that. You know, it's to say that what Jack's talking about, he's already pointing out it actually benefits us to study what he's talking about because one of the things that he's saying is that these groups of people that are arguing with us about this and saying that we should just be able to do it now, don't understand that that's far more complex than they believe it is. That's what Jack is trying to point out, is that, you know, that the screening process is the training, the fact that you have to actually be trained to be able to get along well enough and pool your intellectual resources enough to be effective in consensus is, is something that we've been trying to say the whole time, that the value structure needs to change. And that's why what Jack's pointing out is that um, you know, if you can do that, then you can have consensus. The movement is not ready for consensus at this phase. It, it, no. No, yeah, it certainly, it definitely isn't. But my main point of contention was, wasn't really with, with Jack, although I did have some double-sided feelings about the screening process and how that would affect the outside and the progression of the whole idea. Uh, my main the issue with the whole thing was with, with Eric saying that uh, he, that he would see it as a more beneficial situation if people from the movement were within such a community doing their activism. I think that would very would be very detrimental. We need to be at those places where it's wrong to in order to change values. Well, that's certain people. Uh, just a quick interjection. It's certain people. I mean, not everybody is like Peter or you. Not everybody's very vocal and extroverted. I'm just. I'm thinking of people like like programmers and designers who that you know a better environment where they're not wasting money paying rent. Of course, people like Peter and people who are very vocal and good at speaking should be out in the traditional paradigm community. But think of all the people who I mean, their their, their skills they're very introverted and uh, you you understand what I'm saying there. Yeah, that's that's true, and I, I really appreciate the fact how you're explaining it, but. Uh... I still have a small issue with it, and that even if they aren't that skilled in communicating, and I'm not saying I am, uh, certainly Peter, I think is a very good communicator. Uh, even if we're not, uh, we're trying to reach all uh, seven billion people, if not more, at this point in time. And unfortunately, we need everybody. We can't have, we can't really afford people going into these communities right now. Uh, in, in, the, in the sense that it's described, if it's a community that interacts with the, with the public all the time, sure, that, that, that might be a way. Yeah, I think, Gilbert, I think you're missing a huge point. If, I'm sorry to continue on, but I think you, you still, and, and, and I have to say Peter kind of, I, I see it in his, his speech sometimes, is that you, you have this perception, that, and, and it may be true with a lot of people. That, no, I mean, what I'm trying to do is, is to set up... I've looked at the failed communities, and the biggest thing they, one of the biggest things amongst a list of a few big things was they, 
the community's intention was to be different and hide away from society. To like, oh, we're vegans and we're better. Or we're, you know, we're spiritually conscious and all you capitalists are. Uh, so no, that's not the point. I think you're miss. This is the point. Like Jack says, is to show, to be an example, to welcome people to, hey, come visit. See how we are living. Look how we're sharing. So I, I think that's one of the things you're missing, Gilbert, is these are not communities for escape. They're communities for models to show how it can be done. Because like we said, the co communication is one. We can talk about it, but we need to also show the people what it looks like, what it looks like to sh share the car. I, I understand you know, that. Go ahead, Jack, if you had something, because we're down to the last two minutes. Okay. Um, yeah, a lot of it is, a lot of what needs to happen, we feel, is is this shift in consciousness. And some people might initially have a problem with the idea of screening and, and screening people out, but until we shift consciousness, until people get the idea that that we, they can have so much more from cooperation, from moving into a loving place inside them, from coming to a more mature place inside them as part of the process. We could have the form, we could transition into a form of, of cooperation, but people may well just crash that whole thing if they also don't hold that consciousness of the highest good. So for us... The consciousness and the form have to go hand in hand. We have to do both at the same time. And the screening to sh to, to, so that people can successfully demonstrate the model is part of that so that the next people who come and form the next community can do the same thing. And we don't have to get the entire world all at once, but just as people who are, as people become ready to move into that, that that's what inspires them to make the change. Well, thanks again for being on. Um, Blog Talk is just going to hang up on us here. <laughs> cause we